Yeah, I'm shooting with you. That's right. Yeah. Hey, how you doing at the Team Sergeant Louisville, Jerry? Huh? Your own sons don't call themselves Wallace. Why? All right. Why? Because they're ashamed of your ass. We earned everything we got. We give these people their money's worth. You never earned anything in your life. You're a 35-year-old man who's still living with his mother. How old are you? Huh? If it wasn't for your mom and dad who financed this bunch of crap, you wouldn't be anything. You understand that? Frustrated over what has just happened. Whoa! Frustrated isn't the goddamn word for it. This is bullshit. Oh, we apologize, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody screws me, and nobody does a goddamn thing about it. Welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast, going back in the time machine of March of 1997 for Volume 1 of this month's show. Three volumes for you this month. In Volume Number 2, we take a trip to WCW, looking at Uncensored. And in Volume Number 3, we take our final trip to ECW ahead of their pay-per-view. Here in Number 1 to discuss the WWF and WrestleMania, I'm being joined firstly by Del Mio. Del, good evening. Hi, Bob. And Rory McNamara. Rory, hello. Evening all. Rory kicks off with the news. 
Well, indeed. Bret Hart, yes, Bret Hart turned heel this month after competing in an epic match alongside Steve Austin at WrestleMania, where he won after Austin passed out in the sharpshooter. The turn, which basically happened six days before Mania in a foul-mouthed tirade on Raw, which included the words bullshit and tough shit airing unedited, has seen Bret turn his back largely on the USA. His match with Austin at Mania was considered to be for the WWF title at one stage, and also for the main event, but in the end neither happened as Sid and The Undertaker went on last. After a bloody Austin passed out, special guest ref Ken Shamrock ended the match before Shamrock slammed Bret for attempting to reapply the hold. Shamrock shaped for a fight, but Bret cowered off. And elsewhere at WrestleMania, the, the main event saw Undertaker defeating Sid for the WWF title. That was a match that Bret Hart eventually came out almost three times. Um, three times he came out during the main event and pretty much cemented his heel turn. Um, eventually, after Sid saw him off the third time, Undertaker won the match. Shawn Michaels' absence for TV, that lasted all of a few weeks. He returned at the, at the pay-per-view as a special guest announcer in the main event. Show otherwise, quite flat, saw wins for the Headbangers, Rocky Maivia, Hunter Helmsley, and the team of the Legion of Doom and Ahmed Johnson. And in the tag title match, Owen Hart, the British Bulldog, went to a double count out with Mankind and Vader, both of whom are working through injuries at the minute. After another dingy TV show from abroad, Raw underwent a facelift on March the 10th with the rebranding of Raw is War and the introduction of a massive video wall and an improved entrance ramp. The shows, strangely reminiscent of another Monday Night Wrestling show, has featured an increased emphasis on angles and a decrease on building in-ring action. While Raw has continued to be hammered in the ratings, including losing a segment on March the 3rd by three complete points to a bizarre Roddy Piper segment on Nitro, TVs have generally been stronger recently. The one thing of note from the March the 3rd taping was British Bulldog defeating Owen Hart to win the new WWF European title. And while the European title might be new, something that's a bit older, the ECW angle was revived this month. Uh, March 10th saw an in-ring debate between Jerry Lawler, Paul Heyman and a series of ECW talent. The the segment, once again, no clear benefit to WWF other than a bit of a time filler, quickly turned into a shoot between Lawler and Heyman. The two of them are said to be an amicable enough terms backstage, but Heyman asked Lawler how he was doing at the seesaws in Louisville, a reference to his uh, prior legal troubles, and Lawler asked Heyman what it was like still living in his parents' basement. Um, as was expected last month, Tommy Dreamer's involvement in the angle possibly or maybe probably leading up to a, a match with Lawler if he's working in ECW in a few months' time. Ken Shamrock's deal is said to be worth well over half a million dollars a year, and it's said that the timing of Shawn Michaels' injury caused the WWF to move so quickly that Shamrock cancelled plans to meet with Eric Bischoff. Mark Mero had knee surgery in February and will likely be out for at least six months. It's said that Sable will continue to work on television. And it's said that Vince McMahon and Bruce Pritchard had a meeting with Larry and Kurt Hennig regarding Kurt's potential return. We'll let you fill in the blanks by saying that Larry was front row at... Nitro the following week. And a reminder that we are on Patreon for five bucks a month. If you'd like to say thank you or indeed to get early access to our shows, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 RS. Our links on our website and in the podcast description below. We move on to the ratings of the month and a fantastic month for Nitro, which started with a 3.4 to Raw's 1.9 on March the 3rd. That was 
part of the theme that precipitated a lot of the changes on uh, on March the 10th with Raw is War as Nitro did a 3.5 to Raw's 2.3. On March the 17th, with Raw running a Brett versus Sid title cage match, Nitro won with a 3.6 to Raw's 2.4. On March the 24th, the night after WrestleMania, Raw did a 2.5 up against Nitro's 3.0. We won't have the ratings from March 31st until next month. Nitro are consistently doing mid-1s for their replays later in the evening during the month. We open up Raw on March the 3rd with Vince voiceover talking about the symbol of freedom that is the Brandenburg Gate and then telling us that tonight the world will unite to crown the first ever European champion. The Berlin Deutschland Halle plays host to Raw. The arena does give the show a very different feel but not for the first time this year on Raw. It's somewhat dimly lit. Bret Hart versus Hunter Hearst Helms is our first match of the evening. Bret gets his biggest pop for what seems like a long time and even Hunter manages a bit of heat. Hunter actually dominates most of the offence so the contest is a fairly dull one. He picks up towards the end until a terrible finish where Bret gets DQ'd for stomping on Hunter in the corner. Bret then gets accosted by the bionic type looking woman, thanks Vince, for officials break everything up. Rocky Maivia defends the Intercontinental title against Vader. Decent battle here, complete with Vader debuting a leg grapevine at one point. Things spill to the outside. Mankind turns up to clock Rocky with the urn and draw another disqualification. Vader is not happy and he takes out his frustrations on Rocky. The King joins us via phone. He calls out Paul Heyman to show up on Raw next week where Raw will be war. We join the Soul Town versus Flash Funk in progress. This is a backdrop for a Heyman phone-in. He calls Lawler a has-been from Memphis and plugs barely legal. Sultan wins with a camel clutch. Our number two begins with a Sid interview. He shouts a lot. The gist is he will defeat Mankind in their WWF title match tonight. Ahmed comes out to the ring. He accepts Farouk's offer of a street fight at WrestleMania, but he won't be coming alone. Gets a you're going down chant going. As Mankind comes to the ring, we get a picture-in-picture of him cutting a pre-match promo in German. His match for the WWF title with Sid actually plays out to an interview with Austin back in America. Austin is sick of Brett, whining and crying and quitting. The title match is little more than clubbing until Mankind gets the mandible claw. Sid fights out and Mankind eventually falls victim to the powerbomb. We see footage of Bulldog firing Clarence Mason on shotgun Saturday night. We get more from Austin. Vince calls him a thorn in Bret Hart's side and asks, do you have any remorse? Austin only shows remorse for the fact he didn't hit Bret with a chair last month even harder than he did. He puts over working the final four on one good leg. He calls the submission match a bunch of bull, although he doesn't know many submission moves. He will beat the hell out of Bret Hart because nobody in wrestling can make him quit. And we come back to a live show for a view of the main event. So, the the first three weeks of TV are going to be a bit of a a, a mess and a mix of of pre tapes and and live reviews because there's a fair bit going on. Uh, Rory, uh, we have just left the pre tape segments uh, as the main event is starting between Brr, the British Bulldog and Owen Hart for the new WWF European title from Berlin. Uh, Rory, take us through your notes on this match. I will indeed. Uh, for those keeping score, the Bulldog comes out to a different mix, if that's the right word, of Royal Britannia today for some reason. Vince gets this one on commentary early. We are not talking about Team Over 40. 
Right, here we go. British Bulldog versus Owen Hart for the inaugural WWF European Championship. The crowd are behind Bulldog from the off. Collar and elbow type, and we get a clean break in the corner. They both exchange rolls out of an armbar like Mrs. Calgary in 1981. Or if you're Vince there, fancy manoeuvres. Bulldog spins out one of them while sat on his ass, which was uh, interesting. They flip out of a corner, then they get another big hip toss battle, which Owen wins. Both men kip up, and we have a standoff in the ECW arena. Oh, sorry, wrong notes. Bulldog drives Owen down, but he bridges up, then jumps off the top rope, not the top turnbuckle, and somersaults into another hip toss. That looked beautiful. Owen then goes for a runner, but Davy Boy creams him with a powerbomb. He then catapults Owen outside. Then Davy holds the rope open for Owen. The crowd seem to sense they're seeing something just a little bit different here. Owen reverses a side suplex into a roll-up for two, then Lucha Davy Boy hits an arm drag takedown of all things. He responds then after that with a hammerlock gourd buster as we go to the break. Vince tells us we are not watching the classic sports channel. Cheers, mate. Davy Boy with a one-armed crucifix for two. Owen kicks out and goes for the Sean Killer, but Davy ducks. Davy hits a surfboard. Owen sells the pain of that fantastically. Then he battles up by pushing Earl Habner. Easy ways are the best. Uh, they, uh, they give us the international. Then we get a monkey flip. Owen ducks a closed on, holds Davy to the outside. Then Davy boy back in the ring. This really is interesting. Owen feigns a knee injury. Davy falls for it. Owen kicks his leg out of his leg, but he can't get the sharpshooter on. Owen back in control with a spinning heel kick. Owen works on the back. Davy Boy collapses on an Irish whip after he hits the buckles. See, it's the little things. Now we get a couple of chin locks in the only real dead spots of the match. These allow Honky Tonk Man on commentary to break out his pretty good, actually, impressions of Stu Hart. Davy back in with a sunset foot for two. Owen with a belly-to-belly suplex that looked devastating. And then he hits the camel clutch. Davy reverses that into a painful-looking electric chair. Owen Hart takes the bump almost on his neck. Recovers with a flare pin for two and a massive elbow drop. David back with a, with a diving lariat and a vertical snap suplex. Yep, you heard me, for two. Uh, press slam onto the ropes and Owen reverses a suplex into a German for two. That looked great. And now we hit the big finishing sequence. Bulldog goes for the running power slam, but Owen holds onto the ropes and presses into him for two. Fly body press off the ropes. David Boyd reverses that for another two counts. Owen finally hits the Sean Killer and gets the sharpshooter on. The crowd rally Davy and he gets to the ropes. Owen goes for a tombstone of all things, but Davy counters that into the running power slam for a two count. Owen up pretty quickly into a victory roll for one, two. No, Davy leverages it back. One, two, three. Davy Boy Smith, the British Bulldog, is the first ever European champion. He has handed the belt and the two men celebrate together afterwards with no dissension. We'll follow up that story later in the show. Dale, what do you think of the match? Loved it. Um, I don't know whether there was a bit of a special feel because it was a European title and it was in Europe. Um, one of the, the things going into this that I had in my head was the best match I've probably seen Owen in was against Bret Hart. The best match I've seen Bulldog in was undeniably against Bret Hart. Could they kind of do it together or is it just that common denominator? If you're in with Bret Hart, you're probably going to do all right. Um, I thought the two of them nailed it though. It's a big match feel going into it. The two of them obviously have got chemistry together with the family link and the tag team stuff that they've been doing. I've never had um, my kind of admiration for Owen Hart in the process of doing this show. I think he's amazing. But um, they really, really delivered on it. And certainly at this point as we are in the, in the timeline as in March 3rd, 
match of the year contender, it probably will mean that Owen's going to get showed up again with his brother in a couple of weeks' time when we get to Mania. But for this point, it's, it's the best TV match I've seen in a long, old time. Roy? I think this is very possibly the best TV match we've seen in the entire timeline. Uh, it's time for Brett Wanty Three Kid and Austin Steamboat, both from July 1994, to finally move over. This was wrestling with the shackles off. I think Dell's absolutely right. This did have a big match feel going for a new title. And I get the impression that both of these guys, they felt like they really had something to prove here. They're in a main event of, of, a, of a very different edition of Raw. So brand new titles on the line. They're both extremely talented for working against each other. And most importantly of all here, they were given the chance to actually do it. The, the, the Vince wasn't backstage micromanaging. It was just two talented wrestlers, because they are certainly that, probably understating in the case of at least one of them, just going out there and doing what they are most comfortable with, because they clearly know each other extremely well. Vince played that up on commentary. In some of the counters we see, you don't see them in the punch, kick, slam, style world of the WWF every day. If, if ever, and I think that's why the crowd got so into it, and they sensed they were being treated to something a far, far cry from the usual WWF main event TV fair. Uh, the ending sequence was beautiful. They could easily have got that wrong. But they, they played it to an absolute tee. And you really were on the edge of your seat. Both men could easily have won this match. And the fact that it was actually a heel-heel dynamic, the crowd perhaps understandably favoured David Boyd because he was very much inching face at this point. But the heel-heel dynamic meant that in the best possible sense, you didn't really care who won. You just wanted to see one of these two great competitors actually win. In the end, Bulldog won it, which I think was probably the right call. Owen is the kind of character who titles and should be chasing them. But yeah, this was fantastic action. And if you didn't see this Raw, and judging by the ratings, you probably didn't, then seek this match out. You will not be disappointed. Yeah, this this feels like it might be the the, the last Raw match with a clean finish ever. Going the way Raw's gone in the in the four weeks that followed. This was a very old school match uh, from the dingy mood lighting from, from 1985 to the oftentimes hold and counter hold in the early goings that, you know, you know, re- I kind of feel like wrestling's moved on from all of that. Um, but yeah, it got enough time on a show where very little of note happened. Um, both guys that had their working boots on and you can't always say that about Davey Boy. I think that's a lot of times down to his opponent. You know, D- Davey Boy is a you know is a kind of guy that generally will have a good match with a very good wrestler. Um, and I'm not you know I'm not sold to some people on the idea that Owen Hart is a very good wrestler, but he's clearly good. Um, and they wrestled a very old school style back and forth match, one that I think suited the occasion. I think it suited the venue. Um, I don't know how well this would have got across in America um, with, with, with you know, two non-American heels in a match that took a while to get going. But that's, that can't be a criticism. It's, a, it, it's an observation because, you know, I, I'm crediting them for getting a match right in the setting, which, which we should say. Um, and yes, it got very, very good. I think it didn't hold my attention all that well at times, but that's more the style of that kind of match that isn't always going to keep me on board. Um, But yeah, as TV matches go, this was very, very good. Um, And I think it it set the stage for a new championship. I I don't inherently agree with the idea that 
the, the new championship idea helped the match more than giving it a bit of notoriety. I don't know that it was a significantly bigger match just because it was for a new championship. I think the inequity of a championship has got to be built up. I don't think you can establish one and have it out the gate. Um, but yeah, two two very, very good workers motivated to have a, a good match. Um, and Rory, probably the only thing memorable from this show, would that be fair to say? Oh, it was an absolute dog of a show, wasn't it? It was terrible. Uh, that, that was the Brett Helmsley match, which kicked things off, which had one of the worst finishes I've ever seen outside of WCW. And there was some sort of Sid Mankind title match in there as well, which was 10 minutes and 50 seconds of headlocks in an 11-minute match. And yeah, the setting was weird, and you have Honky Tonk Man on commentary, and yeah, just ain't good, really. Um, I suppose you could say that that was the very, very end of Raw 1.0 as we reset things the next week, and... Uh, yeah, but this match aside, it was not the most auspicious, auspicious way to go out. No, not least the sort of live video link with Austin in America, despite <laughs> the fact the commentary was being presented as live on a show that was being presented as live from Germany, and then we cut to Austin in the dark in northeastern USA. So, you know, work that one out. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it certainly had its faults, I think. Um, Mankind match, not only was it really bad, uh, that was one of the low points of the show from a rating standpoint on, on a show that was just a general low point. Um, but probably the first of a few bad weeks for Sid that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll chronicle as we go along. But anyway, Roy, to March the 10th, um, there's, uh, this, this show is more noteworthy for the first three minutes than it largely is for the next 90. Um, but talk us through Rory's War, and then we'll talk about the, the, the main segment from March 10th and overall our, our general thoughts on the aesthetics of the show. I will indeed. So on 10th of March 1997, the 200th edition of Raw, no less, we were treated for the first time to a brand new show called Raw is War. And fitting at the occasion, we got a brand new intro sequence, which sees various superstars battling it out in a fire-lit, disused warehouse with lots of barrels with Raw is War written on them. Lots of dogs barking and that kind of thing as a heavy-duty metal truck plays in the background. Uh, we cut back to a lot of pyro this time, actual proper pyro, not the sparklers in hands we normally see. The set is what looks nothing like we've seen before in WWF. There's a massive video screen over towards the left-hand side of the hard camera, which we find out in a later edition is being known as the Titan Tron, and a very, very large metal ramp, which has a bit of a drop-down to the floor behind it as well at the top which becomes important in one or two matches a bit later on in the month. But yes, a very, very different feel. It makes their arenas look bigger, which in some cases, given some of the attendances, is not a bad thing. And uh, yes, they're paying attention to things that need to be changed. Vince is still Vince, unfortunately. So here's the first Raw is War. We begin with JR interviewing Sid. He is reluctant to join forces with The Undertaker tonight and will not fall for any traps, because Undertaker will become his victim at WrestleMania. And he recommends he stays in the cemetery. Undertaker interrupts and tells Sid that if he's scared, he should say he's scared. Undertaker needs Sid safe tonight so he can bring the belt home to the creatures. If need be, he'll deal with Vader and Mankind himself. Paul Bearer waddles down to ringside to call the babyfaces cowards. Vader and Mankind jump them, but the good guys clean house and they share a stare down. A brand new show. Apparently means old-style jobber matches, though, as Rocky Maivia takes on somebody called Tony Ruar. Uh, Backland, who's aligned with the Sultan, rabbits on during the contest from the top of the ramp. Rocky wins with a top-right body press. 
Uh, the Sultan comes down afterwards, Rocky disposes of him, and he leaves with his dad's old tag team partner, Tony Atlas. On loan from AAA, we get Heavy Metal, Pentagon, and Pierroth against Latin lover Octagon, and somebody else I don't think they even name properly. Uh, this is the usual Lucha Fest you'll either love or hate. Uh, the Bionic Woman, as Vince is still calling her at this point, gets led away from the arena during this. We get a brief P&P interview with Brian Pillman. Get used to those, by the way. Uh, telling us that he will be commentating on Shotgun Saturday night. In the match, somebody beats somebody with the La Magistral Cradle. The commentators don't even call the finish. If they don't care, why should I? Ahmed Johnson is up against uh, a jobber by the name of Troy Raymond, I think, but the nation appear almost immediately. They look on as Ahmed wins with the Pearl River Plunge. Farouk once again calls Ahmed and Uncle Tom and says his people will let him down. I might need some help on this. Ahmed Johnson calls him an overdressed, choco-covered punk. Yes, I did have to rewind that one back. He has found two mean, nasty people to join him versus the nation at WrestleMania. On cue, that's the, the Legion of Doom's music plays, and they join Ahmed in the ring. Ahmed tells the nation that you boys are turning white. We're out with a you're going down chance. Hour one ends with JR again, interviewing Owen and Bulldog about their match last week. Owen doesn't want to talk about Bulldog beating him. They're up against the new Blackjacks. Vader does Vader things in another P&P interview. And now Taz, yes, Taz does a P&P. He threatens Lawler, obviously. The match just ends in some sort of DQ in with the Blackjacks because I think Owen and Bulldog were double-teaming too much or something. It's never explained. Get used to shitty finishes like this one. Here's our two. Fonzie and his whistle try to restrain Taz from getting to Lawler. Lawler and Taz actually get into it a little bit, but here comes Sabu. He, of course, ends up leaping off, leaping off a chair in the ring through a very helpfully placed table. It's very nice of Jim Ross here, by the way, to pay heed to ECW continuity by asking who Sabu actually intended to hit. Various ECW guys come down to help break everything up. Leaf Cassidy is against Miguel Perez Jr., but that doesn't matter because here is Paul Heyman, and he actually calls himself Paul Heyman, for, you guessed it, a P&P interview. He promises to bring his, phrase to, his friends to the debate later tonight. Perez wins with a prawn hole cradle. Had enough of interviews? Too bad, because here's Sid to shout a lot. He brushes off having to face Brett for the title next week. And now here's Ken Shamrock. He's only being interviewed, you know. He's going to be the special ref for the Bret Austin submission match at WrestleMania 13. He knows submission well, so there'll be no rules breaking. Yes, rules breaking. Austin interrupts on the big screen. It's a bunch of BS that Bret gets a shot before Mania, but he of course hopes Bret well, wins. Before, he's not about to start at Mania, and he's very tempted to knock Shamrock's lights out just because he can. Bret interferes. He's still angry he was ripped off for the WWF title the day after the Final Four. Sid will never be as good as he was, and he will soon become the fifth time, yes, fifth time, as he says, WWF champion. Austin had better bring everything he's got. He's going to be sorry he ever crossed Brett's path. And Shamrock had better not screw with him either. Shamrock's not a marriage counsellor, he's just here to referee. I've never known that. Austin stands on the ramp, gives them both a finger. Billy Gunn beats Aldo Montoya. Sonny's here to shield shotgun Saturday night. Mankind with an interview as he throws down the urn because he doesn't need it, and he doesn't need Mommy either. Goldust defeats somebody called Ted McNeely as Hunter and that woman lock on. Uh, he then uses her distraction to attack Goldust and then Marlena jumps her. JR on commentary says Marlena's full of spunk. 
fill in the gaps yourself. The Amazonian then picks up a referee and flings him around. Now we come to the great debate between Paul Heyman and Jerry the King Lawler. First of all, let me say this. The question is not whether ECW should exist. My question is whether ECW does exist. Because you see something, Paulie? You are being seen right now by more people at this very minute. Oh, yeah, hey, wait, what's this? Yeah. Go ahead, Keep King. Out there if you don't mind. You're being seen by more people right now at this very minute than you have ever been seen by in your entire life. Because your little rinky-dink ECW promotion is a bunch of misfits, a bunch of thugs, and a bunch of has-beens that couldn't catch on with any legitimate wrestling organization. Yeah, listen up, guys. I'm talking about all of you. You understand that? So what you idiots did, you all migrated to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and you all got your little pea brains together, and you said, hey, maybe we can't wrestle, so maybe if we can get beat ourselves into oblivion with frying pans over our head, or maybe let each beat each other up with barbed wire covered baseball bats. Oh my goodness. Maybe there's enough morons and brain damaged idiots in the city of Philadelphia to come and see us. And you know what, Paulie? You go down to a bingo hall once a month in Philadelphia, and you put on your little charades, and you beat each other into oblivion. There's blood running everywhere. And you draw about, well, about 1,100 people come to see you do this stuff. 1,100 idiots. But you're, you know what? No, wait a your time is up. My time's not up. I'm going to let him talk. He told the truth. When the World Wrestling Federation goes to Philadelphia, they put 22,000 people into the core state spectrum. That's the core state spectrum, Now, my center, question for you, McMahon... And is if you're trying to imitate Shut up! Shut up! You don't up. need ECW. Just let me stand up your fire! Just keep talking, That's all you need to Mr. do. Mr. Lawler, now it is his so turn. Back to the WWF put 22,000 people in the seat. It's not a testament to anything that you've ever accomplished in your whole stinking life. The fact, the fact that we earned the respect of every single one of those 1,100 people by bleeding, by sweating, by fighting, by taking each other down and showing these people that we will bust our ass, bust our ass to give them their money's worth. That's what ECW is all about. That's why Uh on Sunday night, April 13th, we're going to give them a pay-per-view. And you're right, Jerry Lawler. You're right. We are very small. Oh, you need a high dive. I'll take his ass right now. No, 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 no. no, no. Yeah. Take him back. Maintain some decorum, please, if we can. You ought to get down on your hands and knees and thank your lucky stars that you're getting to plug a stinking pay-per-view on Monday Night Raw. Do you understand that? And why Vince McMahon allows it, I'll never know. Look, and you're proud of drawing 1,100 people in Philadelphia? Because we are. That's 4 million people. There's 1,100 more of us that have come to watch paint dry. <laughs> you want to shoot yeah, I'm shooting with you. That's right. Yeah. Hey, 
How you doing at the Chief Stars in Louisville, Jerry? Huh? Your own sons don't call themselves Wallace. Why? Why? Because they're ashamed of your ass. We earn everything we got. We give these people their money's worth. You never earned anything in your life. You're a 35-year-old man who still lives with his mother and father. If it wasn't for your mom and dad who financed this bunch of crap, you wouldn't be anything. You understand that? Huh? You want to shoot with somebody? Why do you hang around with these guys? You're not an athlete. I hang around with them because they give the people their money's worth. Because they want to go on pay-per-view and be extreme. We are the Howard Stern of wrestling. Shut that microphone down here. Shut him up. We're hardcore and damn proud of it. Paul Heyman comes down alone to face Lawler. Various ECW wrestlers show up to support him, though, as Lawler calls them the thugs and has-beens. Lawler gives us the usual lines about frying pans and bingo halls and small attendances. Now, Paul Heyman's bored face is an absolute picture, by the way. Sig that out if you can. He then tells Lawler to shut the hell up. Heyman rightly says that WWF attendances have nothing to do with Lawler. In ECW, they bust their ass to give people their money's worth. Sandman grabs the mic and offers the cane Lawler's ass. Heyman brings up the shoot word because Heyman, and then they just shout at each other about their families. Here's Heyman again. We are the Howard Stern of wrestling. We're hardcore and we're damn proud of it. Tommy Dreamer grabs the mic and he wants a war right now. Lawler calls out his guys, but, it, but of course it's Jerry Lawler, so nobody appears to help him. Heyman then sort of just throws Lawler out of the ring, and from there, things sadly sort of peter out. What do we think, gents? Yeah, uh, Dale, I'll start with you first. Um, I think it's a good thing when you always think something's too short. It's the first thing. The second thing I would put is how many folk can own Jerry Lawler on a microphone, which Paul Heyman's possibly one of the only ones that could do. Even the the bits earlier on, we see in Fonzie and the telly, and that fucking whistle and Sabu on his bit. The, the debate hang, as I say, I thought it could have went a bit longer, but it does. It feels it feels fresh, man. It feels like something that would actually happen in 1997, where you're dropping, dropping Howard Stern into the conversation, and you're talking about wars when it's now raw as war. It felt, this would feel really, really strange, I think, in that kind of last week situation, where it's like just raw, and it just it opens up exactly like it did two years ago, or whatever, four years ago when you're sitting out there with Ron Bartlett and Rob Bartlett and it, it just felt as if this was something that I think they need to do a lot more if you're bringing in a Brian Pillman to kind of come on to Shotgun Saturday nights and then if you're going to have Heyman and Waller going at it I'm, I just I don't know whether it, it translates to a mass audience because I've obviously done a lot of stuff with a show with ECW so I'm pretty invested with having a a foot in both camps really where I can see what happens in Philly I see what happens in New York and then when the two worlds collide it's good I don't know how much that comes across to other people though I think they might just think well who are these who are these folk if it was kind of getting a first time a first try to see them without a pay-per-view I think you would maybe get a bit more involvement but the, the goal for this obviously for ECW is to plug their show I don't know, though, how many folk would be watching WWF and then say, oh, no, I need to see this. I don't know. I don't know how much it translates to a broader audience would be my bigger worry. Now, in the 
two shows effectively. I, mm. I know there were there were phone-ins and a couple of others, but in the two shows that we've seen of ECW, have we seen anything that would make someone want to tune into the pay-per-view? I think the easiest way that you would want to tune in is when Ahmed Johnson's bringing out an army to fight the nation. He brings out fucking New Jack and Mustafa. Would be my fuck that kind of put me on a bit of a downer getting into this debate because I was honestly building up my hopes that that's what was going to happen. But you see, I, mean, I can see somebody tuning in and seeing Sabu and think, who the hell is this? I want to see this. If you are, do, you, are you going to pay 25 bucks off the basis that's, that's the thing, because I mean, if this was like, I mean, how many times do we see, even going back to years ago, for Shatner comes out and plugs Tech War? It's it's something that you can see following Raw on on TV. If it's this is on on a Monday, if you're putting on putting on ECW at eleven Eastern, I can see people staying on board with it. If you're putting it on even like a special shotgun Saturday night, I can see it. But actually spending money, it it, it certainly does more for ECW than it does for WWF, at least for an on screen point of view. But I, I think with the time that they've had and the, the the way that they're able to market that product in a very, very different market is on, is on WWF TV, I don't think there would be many. I think the people that would be watching ECW wouldn't be watching Raw. And if anything, that's possibly one of the small gains that WWF's getting, is it's maybe getting folk that when they watch Raw, watching Raw, I don't see folk watching Raw and then thinking, oh, I need to watch ECW. But I don't know, we've still got, we've still got a month for this point before ECW does the pay-per-view, whether they get something else at the start of next month, or I don't know. I mean, for me, I think it's interesting as fuck, but I'm very much biased in that point. You're watching the pay-per-view already. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like this, this was an interesting segment, but I, I don't necessarily know that it was good in any way. Um, you know, as in they said almost nothing of note, which was spectacular in such a, a relatively long segment. Um, and the only thing was of note was. Heyman just randomly says, oh, you want to shoot, do you? And then says the line about the, the seesaws <laughs> in Louisville, which nobody reacted to at all. And then Lawler says about living in his parents' basement, and Heyman says about none of your kids call themselves Lawler. And then it, the whole thing just fizzles out. I mean, Rory, I, you know, I, I don't... I don't, You've seen less ECW than us too, but I, I don't know that... Any of this resonated with anyone watching the show that didn't already watch ECW? Not at all. I knew everything they were talking about, and I was zoned out. You know what I mean? So that's the thing where you just spend your entire time dropping insider references. Yes, people are going to get them, but is it going to help you want to? Is it going to help sell your product? And let's face it, ECW have a product that they really need to sell. Probably not. I mean, Heyman and Lawler shooting at each other. If you're somebody who gets to uh, page 10 of The Torch and The Observer every week, then yeah, you're going to love it. But it's filling up 10, 15 minutes of WWF TV time. And I'll be honest with you, I was even more bored than Paul Heyman was. They're just shouting over each other. And it's not selling any pay-per-views for ECW, in my opinion, but not going to ensnare any casuals. It's not helping with WWF's cause when, A, they've got this small matter of WrestleMania in 13 days' time, and, B, they've got a brand-new edition of Raw that 
I would imagine is going to be the format going forward for a long, long time. And they're just giving up time for another company. So no, I didn't enjoy this. I don't think it accomplished anything. I wonder if Heyman and to some extent Lawler might have patted themselves on the back towards the end of it. But I think this was a bit of a failure. Yeah, um, at least the one two weeks ago had a purpose, and dare I say, at least the one two weeks ago had a bit of novelty. Um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know that Lawler. You know, it was a nice gag, Lawler calling out for backup and nobody helping. Um, but I don't know that that was a great resolution to all of this. Just as a, a nice ha ha at Lawler, and it's that you've got, you know. They've had the Eliminators in the Eliminators, arguably the best tag team in North America. Possible Furnace and Lafon, also in this company, also not on this show, I don't think, um, or in that discussion. They've had the Eliminators at the building twice. Would it, you know, if you want to, you know, if they have an interest in getting ECW over and they have an interest in creating compelling television, I still don't know why the Eliminators just haven't won the tag titles at this point. Like, I still don't know the answer to that question. While tag titles are doing nothing. You want to showcase something. Eliminators are the best tag team on national television right now, I would argue, because as much as I say LaFon and Furnace are probably better, and they probably are, they're not being showcased as such. The Eliminators are better than anything either side of got or either side of showcasing. Just put him out there. You've got Sabu. Sabu, who's, you know, again, like a, a nine and a half out of ten in a few things. Sure of fuck, he's got weaknesses, and I don't know how much he scales. He's been around both of these shows, and his contributions have been falling off of the raw side and flinging himself through a table. Okay, it was a bit crazy. It was a stunt. But, you know, the monster truck thing at Halloween Hammer cut his go was a stunt. It didn't mean it was productive. Um... Yeah, like I, you know, ECW obviously didn't have much of a, a dog in this in terms of, you know, they just had to take whatever WF gave them. But if I'm WWF and I want to fill some time, there's so many better things to do than this. Um, and funnily enough, I kind of feel like the the ECW show that this helped wasn't even the pay-per-view coming up. I feel like it's the show that Jerry Lawler appears at. Because uh, it sounds like that's going to happen. And Lawler and Dreamer was the the thing they were kind of angling at, even on this angle as well, which makes a lot of sense. Like, why not do Lawler and Dreamer on Raw? Like, I, I don't... I don't know. I just don't, I just don't feel like anyone really benefited from this, uh, rather than... as uh, Other than just a random, slightly oddly presented bit of exposure for ECW. I think it's just one of these ideas that really comes across well on paper. For Heyman gets national TV to plug a pay-per-view... WWF's a bit more tricky with they really get through this. I mean, they've got a bit of a backup and and having an, a, a, a kind of independent organisation. I mean, it's not as if they're going to take down Ted Turner with the two of them together, but certainly what Eric Bischoff was saying um, as we come on in part two about kind of this being the biggest threat to WCW, you, you could almost make an argument for it if you'd enough time to kind of put it across, but I just don't... I, I think it's just like a lot of ideas in this federation, but on paper, they're very good, but the actual delivery just kind of lacks that bit. I think they nailed it with the first one because nobody expected it. Nobody quite knew what to expect once they knew it was happening, and the fact that it was done and they nailed pretty much everything that they had there, it, it really came across well. And if we thought... 
well that was what February we've got a couple of months to a pay per view we can build this up do this do that Get it, get it storyboarded. Get this is what we want to do. This is who we want to shine. This is where we want to be at the end of it. And then everybody consider it a, a success when the goals are met. I think it's more the kind of planning that's just kind of let it down. And when it's when it's seeing two guys like Lawler and Heyman, I mean, I know the history of USWA. I'm sure probably a few other hundred people maybe do watching this. But you're going to a I show that while it's dwindling in ratings, there's still a couple of million folk watching this every week, and um, I think it's I think it's just trying to get it over to the masses instead of over to the the people that would probably be watching anyway. I think that's what they've failed in a wee bit. Um, Roy, we'll discuss this now, even though you know it will probably be a bit clear to discuss it at the end of uh, this show review. Just I think more just like we'll do the show review and then bang into the next one. But Roy, what did you think of uh, of Roy's War? The presentation, the the new look, the new wrap, the new big video wall, all of the above. Well, the general presentation was really, really good. It looked amazing. I had no idea what to expect, and they cut back from that heavy duty, gritty, down and dirty intro package which I really like they cut back from that there's the big flames appear on the screen as like I said in the uh, in the review some genuine actual pyro this time I've got the sense that yes WWF mean business and Raw is War yes they probably picked that name the last five seconds before they decided they were going to go ahead with the show but uh, it works it looked fantastic it just things just look a lot bigger but they don't necessarily look a lot grander, it's not more pomp, it's not more pageantry, because hell knows we see enough of that, especially this time of year but it just looks as though the entire organisation have got the gloves off and they're ready to fight and just compared this view, and they weren't in a particularly big arena here, but it just looked just looked more important as if they were taking the presentation of the show a lot more seriously, just compared to the roars we were seeing three years ago when they were taping four or five weeks ahead of time action in high school gyms in Roanoke, Virginia. And just compare that to here. And I thought I thought it looked great. I, the overemphasis, and I do mean overemphasis, on interviews, that looks as though it's the way it's going to be going forward, like we said in the news. If those interviews are being used to sell things, i.e. big matches on TV and pay-per-views, and I'm okay with it, they need to be worth overkill. It did make me laugh when during the Owen Bulldog match, Vince on commentary made a point to say, we're not giving you a bunch of talk, we're giving you action. Yeah, for one week only. Um, so they need to watch that, but uh, all the interviews did at least have a point. But uh, I liked, I like where they're going with this, and they seem to keep it holding throughout the month as well. Something very different. Lord knows they needed it. Let's hope they keep it going. No. Um, I'm very, very hard pushed to argue with Mike Namara. Um, I really liked that. I really liked the presentation of it. The, the first thing that jumped to it, well, the first thing really was the music, because the music is so much better than, than what we've had last week and what we've had for the last couple of years. But um, looking at it from a visual point of view, it's very, very reminiscent of uh, an organisation uh, a couple of thousand miles down the road. Um, even just the way that it sets up and with the fire and with the warehouse, and it just looks pretty much like a... Like almost like a second take of what Nitro maybe done when they were trying to put their kind of video package together. But I mean this is this is two companies that are pretty much going to war at the minute. So I mean the name makes sense. It's no coincidence that um Monday Night Raw scans perfectly well as Monday Night Raw. I mean that's 
the clues in the title for where they picked that up for. So I think kind of firing that shot back, we pretty much taken their their visual presentation and coming up with it. But they nail it as soon as you get into an arena and you see that big screen. It's like, oh, this this feels different. This feels pretty cool. And um, I think it is. We've seen it kind of last week with like the the Germany stuff and going to Steve Austin when you're if you're maybe going to try and kind of play from in ring to a pre-tape or a quote-unquote live, maybe via satellite segment, I think that kind of gives them something that could, could have a lot of fun with in the next few months, years, however long this lasts. But um, it feels a lot more, uh, the danger is sounding like East, uh, WCW a couple of years ago when Sting was bringing them into the 90s in 1995. This does feel very 90s. Um, me and Rory kind of quite big music fans a thing that you could look at for a 1990s point of view is early 90s you kind of had that shit electro music that was everywhere with the hangover for the 80s when everything was neo and everything was buzzing and everything was shit if you want a better word this feels a lot more kind of Heyman said it earlier on Howard Stern this feels a lot more grunge this feels a lot more Seattle this feels a lot more edgy I mean you get the, the headbangers out there every week with a kind of band t-shirts and it feels as if it's almost like cult-like and I think that's something the WWF could get a lot of investment out of is it's that it's that kind of mainstream underground if you pardon me the hyperbole it's like trying to get something that feels cool but getting enough people to see how cool it is to go up against something that's let's be honest battering them in ratings at the minute so I think for a big investment I think it's something that could certainly have legs in the long term. Major Lee was the was the phrase that came to mind. You know, in the last mm. month, so well, the last two months since the beginning of February, and really in the the five shows between the beginning of February and the March third show, we saw two incredibly dingy nineteen eighty three worthy overseas shows. One from Canada, one from Germany, that were very poorly lit that were very poorly presented and you know in part that was because they shifted to two hours and didn't have enough um yeah they just didn't have enough tv dates and you know it's you can't just take a couple of cameras to a a tv show and present present a, a normal episode of tv there's a lot of production that goes into that kind of thing and then you also have the show in Manhattan Center, which was another knock-on effect of, of the extended, of the extension of War of Two Hours. They had a jam in another show. Manhattan Center was, you know, kind of the opposite of the of the overseas arena shows, and that a TV ready, but again very old school. You know, it's it's War from 1993 basically, um, and you you jump from that into this, and it's like you know. It's like night and day. Like the, I, I think it adds a couple of bit. You know, things are better lit anyway. But I think the big screen and the the big ramp gives the, you know, kind of makes the whole setting a bit more three dimensional. In the otherwise, it, you know, beforehand it was just the ring, and then having any kind of focal point outside of that for run-ins and for for other kind of segments and for spontaneity was quite difficult because things were hard to see. People in the arena had nothing to focus on. Even the entrance ramps were generally kind of tucked away, flat, kind of just coming out of the pocket and space in the crowd. 
And then you've got this massive video wall which presents its own positives as well in the sense that they can have these kind of live cut-ins and I can presume also they can present things to the live crowd even if they're not showing it on TV. But with the big TV screen and the big ramp, I think the ramp's almost as important. The, the ramp is so big it kind of gives everything a focal point even when the screen is just showing the Rory's War logo in that it kind of creates this secondary space away from the ring, kind of like what WCW have got with the, you know, where, where me, Gene Oakland will interview someone on the on the entrance ramp, that thing, kind of thing, kind of like that, but a much more improved version of it. Um, and yeah, just a, a massive hike in production, coincided with a, a, a change in philosophy, I would say, and we're going to see how that kind of manifests itself in the next few weeks of television. And Raw has, hasn't turned 180, but it, it's it's changed up a couple of gears. Um, that's safe to say. Uh, Roy takes you the rest of the TV. Then we're going to go back into some pre-tapes from the March 17th, and then we'll come back and discuss the main event of March 17th. Oh, you know, I want to polish off uh, the March 10th Raw as well with uh, a big-name main event, which seems to be the way they're going forward. It's Vader and Mankind against Sid and The Undertaker, doing the old tag team partners who hate each other shtick. Undertaker takes a while to turn up for this one, but a big pop when he arrives. Um, sad to say that Vader hits the main event chin lock after about two minutes, and it lasts for about two lifetimes. We then get, and Vince loved this, a USA Network overrun, and he thanks them for it. He who pays the piper and all that. Undertaker gets a hot tag, and he cleans house. But of course, he and Sid start, t- start attacking each other. Sid takes a choke slam, and then Undertaker vaults over the top rope onto the heels. Fantastic spot. Amazing elevation, looked brilliant, why didn't you save it for WrestleMania? Anyway, Sid gets his receipt with a power bomb, and Vader gets a three count off that. In the final 20 seconds of um, this particular broadcast, Brett pops up, because that's what Brett does, to tell us that next week when he takes on Sid in a cage match for the title, we're going to find out who the beast of the WWF is, and this is a direct quote, it's not a giraffe. <laughs> yeah, thanks Brett. go-home show for Wrestlemania kicks off with the Legion of Doom against Savio Vega and Crush. During this, Farouk finds Ahmed backstage and hits him in the back with a nightstick. He then comes down to the ring and attacks Hawk with it for the DQ. The nation then beat down LOD until Ahmed comes out the 2x4 and the babyfaces stand tall. Hunter is accompanied to the ring by that woman, who's now going by the name of China. He takes on Flash Funk and wins with the pedigree. Team of Mini Vader and Mini Mankind face Masquerita Sagrada Jr. and Mini Gold Dust. Sagrada pins Mini Mankind with a victory roll. Afterwards, he body presses Mini Vader off of the ramp onto the floor. Gorilla joins us backstage. He confirms that the cage match between Sid and Brett tonight will be for the WWF title, as Vince accuses Brett of using his influence to make this happen. Brett comes to the ring for an interview. The new motto in the WWF may well be you scratch my back and I'll stab yours but you'll still give The Undertaker a title shot after he wins the title tonight. As for Austin, at WrestleMania he's in for the worst thrashing of his life. Vince suggests the crowd respond to Brett. Brett was somewhat checkered. The Sultan beats Mike Bell and he and Rocky Maivia have a stare down. Our number two is Vince in the ring with an interview with the returning Shawn Michaels. He's found his smile again. He calls himself the world's most emotional wrestler and he's very much aware that he can be hard to deal with. 
Sean tells us his knee is coming along and he hopes to be back in the ring in a couple of months. He has a bone to pick with Vince though for not inviting him to WrestleMania. As such, Sean decides to invite himself in order to guest commentate on the main event. Vader vs Bulldog is next. Inevitably, both Mankind and Owen interfere for a DQ. Davy grabs the urn and hits Vader, Mankind and Paul Bearer with it. Billy Gunn beats Aaron Ferguson with an armbar. He George acts with Shamrock, who is on the commentary afterwards, and beckons him into the ring. Shamrock accepts, put Billy in an armbar, followed by an ankle lock and making him tap out to both. Our main event is indeed Sid and Brett for the WWF title. Once again, we'll return back to the live show to review that segment. And we come back. Uh, Rory, to the main event. Main event will be 17th March 1997 Raw, the week before WrestleMania, of course. We have a big title match in a steel cage between Sid, who is defending against Bret Hart. Bret gets introduced first, and he takes a very, very long time to come through the curtain. Uh, I think the phrase is, when you got to go, you got to go. But we get off pretty uh, pretty quickly after that. Brett starts out with some right hands, and he actually knocks Sid down in the corner. Sid comes back with his old favourite corn-cutting punches, though, as we see Austin looking on backstage. You're going to like this one, Bob. He actually stands in front of the monitor rather than to the side of it. Uh, Brett climbs up early, but Sid cuts him off. Sid holds Brett up, then rams him into the cage, and then rams him into the cage again. Sid does the old slow climb nonsense, and then Brett grabs the ankle. As I'm reminded at this point, why I don't really like escape the cage, uh, escape the cage matches. Sid responds with some kicks in the corner, and Brett back with a face rake. Uh, he goes up, but Sid slams him down. Uh, Sid crawls for the door, but Brett has the leg. Austin runs down, and he locks the door. A nice simple touch there, because he doesn't want Sid winning. He wants his title shot against Brett. Uh, we come back from a break with Sid hitting the power bomb. Very early on, but there you go. He then climbs up. Austin knows up to meet him. They exchange rights on the top of the cage. Uh, Austin all but climbs inside the cage, and now Brett is there to join them as he and Austin team up on Sid. Undertaker then runs down to the ring, which is always a good time, and now everybody is battling on top of the cage for the respective title shot. The crowd reaction to this one is rather weird. They're rather they're agape at it rather than hot, as again they're. This is the sort of thing that you don't normally see on WF TV, and it might take a bit of getting used to. But it's like, eventually, it's Austin who falls down first. It's always impressive superplex on Sid. Undertaker climbs down outside the ring. Austin meets him with a chair to the back. Now, I'm sad to say, things get a little bit messy. Sid does the old slow climb thing again as Brett staggers for the door. He actually makes it to the apron, but he has to very unconvincingly wait for an age for Undertaker to recover and then slam it in his face. Indeed, if you watch closely, you'll see Brett practically closes the door on himself. That was that was ugly. Not not good, I'm afraid. He then goes down, and then Sid makes out to retain the title. Uh, let's have a chat about the match before we talk about the the post match stuff. I think. Yes, um, I, you know, I've never been a big fan of the escape the cage idea. I was always under the impression a, a cage match in wrestling was was introduced to keep people out, not as a as a method of victory, because it, it never really makes sense. Just knock your opponent down and run up the cage and climb down the other side. Um, and that was on display here. Um, the match, that being said, actually wasn't that bad. It's certainly not the worst Sid match we saw of the month. Actually, not by it was probably the best Sid match we saw of the month. Um, and yeah, like the 
you know, this was a lot, much like most of the roles we've seen on and since March the 10th, this was much more about the story going forward than it was about the match itself, in with a match of such big magnitude. Um, and, you know, to a point, I think you could tell that they were presenting a title cage match, but not in a way that was like, this is going to be decisive. There was never this massive emphasis on that. Um, yeah, match was okay. It it piqued my interest uh, ahead of the, the stuff at the weekend. But, Dell, I just wonder whether, you know, they're going to regret... Uh, you know, I can't think Dusty W are going to kind of literally regret the same kind of thing where... You build big matches on TV and the matches don't have consequences and the the results and the actions in those matches don't have consequences. People are going to stop ignoring it when you... Uh, people are going to start ignoring it when you say, here's a big match. Pretty much. It's, what's the point? Um, you build these things up, or oh, it's a week to go before many. I mean, this, this belt could change matches and this could mean that somebody else is going to be fighting for the... The title, but it, it did get a bit WCW for it. So, well, you never really missed anything if you if you were at the bingo on Monday. You never really missed anything that you need to kind of set the set the tape recorder up for. Um, I don't. I mean, I've I've kind of been away for for WWF in the last couple of months, looking more at a Nitro point of view. But it it almost seems as if they don't really know what's happening with us. This what's main event and then Sunday who's fighting for a title. I mean the last couple of months for the full for, for the rumble really it's like well Austin Austin won it so he's fighting for the title but well he's no but then Brett says he's due a title match he's kind of getting this but Austin isn't he? and then Taker and Sid get involved I mean if we're an isolated point of view it does make perfect sense the way that the match played out. I mean as you said there was a decent a decent main event, but it was all main about the stories. It was about the the sudden sudden taker, and it was about Austin and Brett. But then when you've got it with with sudden Brett in there, it, it, it kind of needs all four of them to make it make sense. But um, as the match goes, it was all right. The the biggest the biggest kind of detractors which is what we always seem to talk about with these cage matches, where it is the the escape stipulation. For it's you can see why they do it because it builds up a bit of drama with somebody on the mat and somebody climbing a cage and then somebody gets knocked out and then somebody goes for the door. It, it's built to it's built to build an audience and I just don't think that really carries in these days when we've seen it in pretty much every cage match. Um but I mean the the, the match itself, I mean it done its it done its purpose. It filled up T V, it gave them a big match to to plug into the show you can tell they're getting a lot better at the episodic side of this stuff when they are building to these big matches every week nowadays, and it makes sense, but it, it was all about the afters, really. Rory? Match was there. It was a cage match, simply and solely so we could have the visual of all four guys fighting on top for their respective title shots, which on TV, I don't really have any problem with. Match was fine. It was probably the second best Sidney Brett match we've seen after the very nearly 10 worst matches of the year contender that we saw at its time. It was probably just behind their Raw match in February. It was okay. You knew that something big was going to happen early on because Sid hits the power bomb after about four minutes. So the match itself was almost secondary. And yeah, while we're here, we might as well just briefly talk about Escape the Cage rules. I don't like the idea that to win a match, especially a title match, you do so by what is effectively running away from your opponent and leaving them in the ring. That's... 
that's a hard thing to explain to a non-wrestling fan. Oh, uh, yes, you prove that you're the toughest by getting as far away from your opponent as you possibly can. Well, Never well, mind. I think there's something to it in that the idea is you incapacitate your opponent long enough where you can scale the cage and get out the other side, but you shouldn't be allowed to escape through the door. Yeah, through the door is just just the the absolute coward's way out, isn't it? It just just looks stupid. You you win a match by potentially having a door being opened for you by a referee and just casually sauntering down the steps. There's no drama or impact in that whatsoever. Um, in Steel Cage Challenge for the Master System, there's no door, so they've got it right on that one. Although the Mountie's probably the best character on that one, so maybe that's not the best example. But yeah, it was fine. It did what it had to do, and it led us up to something very, very interesting. This uh, this month is exposing the lack of video game knowledge for uh, for those people that are, have got the WCW show to look forward to. And yes, I had to uh, get that one in there. Yes, uh, and to, uh, to, to well, I, I kind of cut Rory's intro off. Yes, we move on to something far more important. Extremely frustrated over what has just happened. Wow! Frustrated into the goddamn word for it. This is bullshit. Oh, we apologize, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody's truthy, and nobody does a goddamn thing about it. Nobody in the building cares. Nobody in the dressing room cares. So much goddamn injustice around here. I've had it up to here. We apologize, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody knows it. I know it. Everybody knows it. I should be the World Wrestling Federation champion. Get him out of the ring. Everybody just keeps turning a blind eye. You keep turning a blind eye to it. I got that gorilla monsoon. He turns a blind eye to it. Everybody in that goddamn dressing room knows that I'm the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Cut him off. If you don't like it, tough shit. Vince gets in the ring to interview Brett. He suggests that Brett must be extremely frustrated over what has just happened. But Brett then shoves Vince down. Frustrated isn't the goddamn word for it. This is bullshit, he says, unbelieved. Brett is utterly furious like we've never seen him before, and he's railing about all the times he's been screwed by the WWF. Nobody seems to care about that. He's still the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. And again, unbleeped, if you don't like it, tough shit. Then things really get mad. He then calls out Austin, but Sid re-emerges. Followed by The Undertaker, who Brett leaps out over the top rope onto. Now Austin appears, and he beats on Brett, as Undertaker and Sid go at it. It's complete and utter bedlam everywhere. Uh, the dear old officials come down to try to break things up. In the confusion, Brett even slugs Pat Patterson, to Vince's notable disgust. You think Brett had drowned a bag of puppies the way Vince was going on about it. With all of this happening, who decides to show up? Because he can. Our boy Shawn Michaels. Not that he does very much, though. He casually climbs into the ring and picks up a chair. He teases using it on somebody. But before he can use it, we conveniently enough go off the air. As we do. Rory, what do you think of this? Oh, my goodness me. This was gripping TV for the last four or five minutes, wasn't it? Even though this has been teased for months and months and months. I was mouth agape stunned when Bret Hart shoved Vince McMahon down. It's still only 80-90% made clear this, but 
if you know to read between the lines, even if you're more than a casual viewer of who Vince McMahon really is, some people have made attention to it on, on TV before. Diesel, a year and a half ago. Austin, a few months ago. So if you fill in those gaps, Bret Hart shoving down Vince McMahon. I mean, when has Vince ever got involved in any, any, any physicality like this whatsoever? This got over perfectly Brett's absolute seething frustration. He's now taken out on the head honcho of the company. Frustrated isn't the goddamn word for it. This is bullshit. I mean, this is superhero clean cut, take it home to meet your mother, Brett Hart, speaking like a really genuinely frustrated real-life person. I never thought I'd see the day. I really believed him because I think Bret Hart, deep down, he really does think that he has been screwed. He really does think that he is entitled to championships and being able to successfully defend the belt and everybody loving him. And that isn't happening. And the last three or four minutes were a good sell of uh, the two big WrestleMania matches, I thought, the two big people uh, beating each other up. We didn't really need Sean in there, but who's going to tell him no? But uh, yeah, this was five or six minutes of fantastic go-home television, the like of which the WWF just has not done before. Bravo. Yeah, I mean, they've, you know, my my major concern is that they'll think, oh, this works, let's do a lot more sweary, shouty promos. And I think this works in part because we don't kind of see it very often. So there is that. Um, and it is also worth saying that um, they... The USA Network did allow or pre-approve Brett swearing ahead of time, so I, so I read, uh, which is significant. I don't think that's something that's going to sustain itself going forward, but I guess that, you know, they said, look, we need to we need to get this over. There's going to be a lot more discussion about Brett's heel turn later in the show. Can we do this? And they said yes, and it's like, let's, let's pretend it was accidental and apologise for it later, which, you know, is fine. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I think... Uh, at this stage, it was flawed. So I've got a lot more problems with, 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 with Brett's promo from the Raw after WrestleMania, but we'll get to that later on. But, Dale, I thought this was, was really good, really compelling, and a really great way to set up WrestleMania six days later. I think they nailed it. Um, it's just nice to see Brett Harvey about fire up his, his backside. Um, something that, that I've really been struggling with in the last couple of months when this is almost been bubbling under the under the surface when you've got Brett and you've got Austin, which this was pretty much about. I mean, obviously there's the Brett McMahon thing, but um, the, the the trouble that I've had with this bitterness that's between these two is when Austin's bitter, Austin comes across as a badass bastard. And when Brett's been doing it, he just comes across as a bit bitchy. And it's been... Well, nobody's playing with me, nobody's looking at me anymore, and this, is, this should be about me, and I don't like it, and I'm going home. Austin doesn't do that, but Brett's really dialed this up now, and the the bit at the end where he pushes fans, and then the bullshit, and the tough shit, and it's just nice to see him actually turning into a decent interview, because as good as Brett Hart is in ring, his weakness is undeniably talking, and whether you want to, I mean, how far do you want to go back with us if he's fucking teaming up with, with Ronnie Garvin and the Survivor sees kidding on that he's on the side of the, what was it, the four befores they caught him because Hacksaw Duggan was in it. He just doesn't come across as real. When you see some of the stuff that he's done with Owen, he doesn't come across as real. But he did here. And, I mean, the, the best bits of these, the best bits of these interviews, I mean, these these guys aren't the actors. They aren't the kind of, as, as much as Brett likes to think he's the, 
a bit of a TV star with some of the stuff that he's managed to get on American Network TV. He's not there because he's a he's got chops as a as a method actor. But when you play into the reality, it, it comes across as real. And if it comes across as real, you believe what they're saying. And it's it's just nice to see him actually, as I say, with a bit of fire, something that's going to give him a decent interview. And it's something that's it's been a couple of months in the waiting. But I am finally back on board with Bret Hart because it's been a long time coming. I think it's about time we started our review of WrestleMania 13. Dale, you can kick us off with the results. Yeah, first up, Bob, with the headbangers beating the Godwins in the four-way elimination match. That was also involving the new Blackjacks and Furness and Lafon, who were previously eliminated, respectively. Rocky Maivia beat the Sultan. That was for the Intercontinental title. Rocky retains. Hunter Helmsley with the now China beat Goldust with Marlena. And for the tag team titles, it ended on a double counter between Owen Hart and the British Bulldog. They were going up against Mankind and Vader with Paul Bearer. Submission match, special guest referee Ken Shamrock from UFC. Bret Hart beat Stone Cold Steve Austin. The match was eventually thrown out with Steve Austin passed out in the middle of the ring. Semi-main, Legion of Doom and Ahmed Johnson beat the Nation of Domination. That was in a Chicago street fight. And in the main event, The Undertaker beat Psycho Sid. In a no disqualification match, that was for the WWF Championship. Sid was the champion, the new champion is now the Undertaker. Roy, what do you think of this show? This absolutely became a one match show. So much so, I'm actually not going to take that into account when giving my first preamble here. We'll talk about it when we get there, and believe me, I can't wait. This has got some pretty tepid reviews, and I'm not sure it was really necessarily WrestleMania worthy. But I think some of the reviews I've seen of this have been a little bit harsh. It was a watchable wrestling show. Other than you-know-what, there was nothing I would absolutely recommend people going out of their way to see other than the fact you've got the WrestleMania sign in the background, which means you almost need to watch it anyway. It was fine. It was two and a half hours. It, it zoomed by. There wasn't a whole lot of fantastic work rates apart from you-know-what. But everybody there was certainly trying their absolute best. There was nobody there just going out picking up a paycheck which is easy to do, the biggest show of the year. So it had its flaws. My God, it had its flaws. But uh, I thought this was watchable. And that might sound like faint praise, especially for WrestleMania. But if you've seen the amount of WWF pay-per-views I have over the last 18 months, then watchable you will very much take. <laughs> Dal, has there been a more... Has there been a more one-match show since Starcade 1993? Um, it's up there. Um, they, they seem to have a bit of a... They seem to have cornered this niche in the market. We kind of market in these one-match pay-per-views in the last couple of months, the Fed, but usually it's the main event. Um, I, I'm totally in agreement with Rory. I mean, I, I'm sitting here and I know a couple of years' time you're going to ask me what I think of this, and I know I couldn't even tell you score-wise where I would be. This could be anywhere for from the middle of the road to amazing, just depending on how much weight you want to put on kind of 20, 25 minutes of something in the middle. Um, it's weird. There's a lot, of, a lot of filler and no much killer, but when the killer came out, it certainly did kill. Yeah, when the sharpshooter came out, he uh, certainly hit his target. Although, uh, yes, you are right. In a couple of hours' time, I probably will ask you about your thoughts on the show. But that's judging uh, by it, we, we, we enter hour number two and we start our review of the show. Um, yeah, uh, th- as, you know, it's very difficult to give a broad stroke review of the show. There was 
Aside from the first two matches, I actually thought the, the the final five matches were all at least good, um, as in they all probably exceeded my expectations um, up until the main event, which was it wasn't a good match, but it had enough going on where it wasn't as bad as the in ring action alone should have made it. Which just, you know, it was, it was one of those things. Like it was a dreadful match, but it was significant enough where it lifted it a bit. Um, and then, yeah, Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin was uh, a match like we've never seen um, in this timeline. As in, it's not to say it was the best, though there's a very good case. Um, but it's to say that much like the first match they had five or six months ago, they're arguably on a much bigger scale. One, they told the perfect story. And two, they absolutely maximised the end goal versus where they were starting from, as in they they had an ending point in mind, and they hit that for six, or hit a home run, depending on what sporting reference you'd like. We will get there, but we do have to get through the, the other matches first of all. Um, and this show does not start well. We open up with a video package that optimistically calls Bret Hart a young man. Uh, Vincent Mann does does refer to WCW earlier this month as the over-40s club, but Bret Hart, I would remind him, is 39. Um, and we start with the Headbangers versus the Godwins versus Furnace and the Fawn versus the new Blackjacks in a four-team elimination match. I think it's meant to be tag rules. We start off with all eight guys fighting. We eventually get some order with Bradshaw and Henry. Henry runs him over with the clothesline. Bradshaw tags in Phineas like he's setting up for a tag move, but blindsides him as he gets into the ring. We get the WCW spot with teammates both being tagged in. The headbangers do start working, but tagging Phil Lafon and double-team flapjacking. Furnace hits a lovely Frankensteiner on Wyndham, but the Blackjacks gain control. Furnace sort of gets suplexed over the top by Bradshaw. We spill with the uh, we spill outside with the blackjack and furnace and fall on the floor. Bradshaw shoves the ref and then gets he, that gets his team eliminated. And then furnace and Fon also get disqualified because well, fuck knows why. I think they were counted out, but anyway, uh, uh, who cares? Phineas gets going with a storing suplex on one of the headbangers. I have a line in my notes that simply says yawn. Phineas and one of the headbangers spit at each other. Henry sends himself at one of the headbangers over the top. Henry attempts to get back in the ring, but his neck gets snapped on the top rope. Marsh hits a crossbody from the top to the apron, then launches Thrasher onto Henry on the floor. Phineas sets for the slot drop, but gets clotheslined. Everything breaks down. Marsh hits a seated leg drop from the top, and that's enough for the win. Del? Uh, that's for shite. Um, there are a couple of reasons why I think you would put a four-way tag team match. One, you've got an overabundance of over tag teams. This wasn't the reason. The other reason is we need a tag team match. It'll start off the crowd, which, to be fair, they actually seem reasonably kind of decent coming into the crowd. But um, the way that they just kind of put—I mean, I know I know it's 1997, right? But you've still got fucking Barry Windham in there, and Dave Hamill, and the Godwins. Are, I don't know. It, it just the crowd just no into like Furnace and Lafon are I mean I've not seen much of them even in ECW I've never seen much of them because I was pretty much on a hiatus at that point but they, they just strike me as like a like an American version of, of Davy Boy and Dynamite and I mean I, I 
just can't see no getting into them. And the crowd probably seen most into them out of this match, but the way that they get rid of them, they're too early, and then it just pretty much turned into a fucking Godwin's headbangers match. You weren't going to get any better than this. And, um, I mean, at least it didn't go too long. The crowd, I thought, were actually pretty kind to it, considering how shit it was, but really, really pissed poor start for me. Roy? Yeah, this sucks. Um, by dint of existing, however, it was at least enough to erase the memories of the four-way elimination match we were treated to at SummerSlam. No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. It was better. <laughs> well, anything was better. The, the only thing it only erased was, was what, what, what was, what was the, the, it raised the answer to the question, what was the most recent four-way tag match on WWF pay That's the only <laughs> thing it erased. <laughs> Well, if I could erase the memory of this match as well, I wouldn't complain too much. I mean, this, this was utterly fucking awful. I'm not particularly making a case for it. If you, the best tag team you have, one of the best tag teams in mainstream wrestling, you eliminate them after four minutes by virtue of them doing something outside of the ring, then you deserve everything you get, quite frankly. That was a complete waste of a team I'm a massive fan of, Furnace and the Farm. I think they're fantastic. They deserve anything to be better than this, and they deserve it. Want to put them in there with Owen and Bulldog one more time. I have no idea what the new Blackjacks are supposed to be. Well, no, it's not sure not what they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be the Blackjacks. But to emphasise that point, we have footage of the old Blackjacks from 1975. Yeah, hit preferences, Vince, hit preferences. Most of your fans are really going to get that one. And then we're left with the Godwins and the Headbangers. The Headbangers are, are pretty good fun, actually. They're extremely sloppy, but then that's kind of their gimmick. A couple of decent high-fly moves, they got the crowd into it. There was one very funny exchange on commentary when Lola asked Vince if he'd ever heard of White Zombie, and Vince <laughs> responded, White Zombie? Has he ever played with Tony Bennett? <laughs> Which is, uh, Vince has one hip cat, I tell you, man. And uh, the Headbangers won because they're the, they're the only tag team left who aren't the Godwins. Uh, that's yeah, that's the obviously. only reason they won. They were just well, yeah. <laughs> obviously, yeah. Uh, pick up his Bob because I don't want to talk about this shite anymore. Yeah. I thought I liked this show. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I, I, I think there's. I think Phil Lafon in his right leg has more wrestling talent than the combined three teams that otherwise made up this match. Um, that's not to do a disservice to, to Doug Furness. You could use his leg in, in, in the same joke. Um, fucking hell! I mean, like, what? What was this? Like, you know, the yeah, no, no fucking. Let's move on. Just what we need at this point. It's honky tonk, man. <laughs> Just what this show needed. One match in. We open it. Well, up next up. We might as well open up. We'll call that the pre-show. We open up next with the Sultan with the Iron Sheik and randomly Bob Backlund versus Rocky Maivia for the WWF Intercontinental Title. Tony Atlas and Lou Albano are sat in the front row because, well, why not? Rocky signals for someone or something. I think that doesn't really go anywhere. Sultan shoves him and Rocky starts out. Sultan levels in, but Rocky kips up. Rocky comes out of the corner with a turn from the turnbuckle on a crossbody and Sultan regroups on the floor. Sultan goes for a nerve hold and we get some fairly audible Rocky sucks chants from pockets of the crowd. Sultan comes off the top of what JR called the headbutt, although it says a lot by how he landed it that I thought was a knee drop. Sultan blocks the sunset flip, pulls Rocky up and hits a belly to belly. We then get a sleeper, which is just what the crowd wanted. Rocky rally before a double clothesline and both men are down. 
Rocky drops Sultan with a right and does something weird as he fires up. We get a belly-to-belly for a near fall. Rocky hits a lovely float over DDT. That got a reaction. He didn't drop he didn't drop salt on his head either, which helped. Goes to the top, hits a flying crossbody, and the Sheik has the ref distracted. Sultan tries to fly inside Rocky, who cuts him off. Sultan responds to a lovely sidekick. You know it was good when the crowd gasped when Rocky kicked out. Sultan hits the pile driver. Rocky kicks out. Sultan goes for another move. Rocky slides out and hits a roll-up for a three. JR goes to Rocky for some comments, but Sultan attacks him post-match, and Rocky gets three on one. Sultan goes to the top and it's a big splash. That was impressive. That was as impressive as anything in the match itself. Rocky puts, gets put in a camel clutch and out comes Rocky Johnson too. Well, no reaction at all. Johnson gets leveled by the Iranian flag. Sultan rips Johnson's sir off the fans chant USA. Rocky gets up. Why is this still going? Rocky gets hold of Sheik and hits a power slam as does Johnson. The segment ends with the pair hugging. Rory, uh, we're 0-2 on this show so far. Yeah, can I go back and do my preamble where I said I didn't mind this show? What, the... <laughs> what, was, I, what was I smoking at the time? This was fuck awful, quite frankly. Um, no, it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as the match last month. It was at least, it, it was Savio Vega bad. It wasn't dangerously bad. Savio Vega is his own level of bad now. I love that. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I absolutely, I, I hated this above the end, which was unintentionally amusing, which I'll get to in a second. The reason I hated this was the fact that the match from a competence perspective, really wasn't terrible. I just want a bit more, I just want a bit more than that. This is from WrestleMania, and that does come a bit later on. Rocky Maivia, he's just too eager to please. He's like the kid who sits in the second row at school, just trying a little bit too hard to suck up the teachers to be put in the front row, but he knows he's never going to be able to get there, and you know he's going to end up annoying you for the rest of the school year. He just throws, like we said uh, on the February pod, he tries to do too much, and it ends up meaning nothing. He needs to get a move set down and stick with it. He just does whatever he can and hopes people end up cheering him. There were actually, Bob, there were two periods of Rocky Sucks chance during this match. I know this is Chicago, but that's really, really worrying. Uh, the Sultan, Salafa Fatu, whatever you want to call him, he actually looked fairly decent in this, but he's playing a character from a thousand years ago. He supposedly had his tongue cut out, so it's difficult for him to get any heat, particularly. And in the end, this superstar who's going to carry the company for the next uh, 10 years, he's saved by his dad from a beat down at the end. Enough said. Del? Mm. Um, I mean, I thought it was slightly better than the tag. I mean, not much, but I thought it was... Oh, but it was definitely better than the tag. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, was, could all agree that. it was a step in the right direction. I mean... How much does it tell you when the Iron Sheik comes in at the end and he actually got audible cheers for beating up a good day? It's the fucking Sheik, mate. He's an arsehole. He's like the biggest bat. I mean, he came out and... I don't know. Um, since when was he in the same page as Bob Backlund, by the way? I, 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 <laughs> that was probably the most baffling thing about this show. I mean, I was, I was genuinely hoping to come into this review. Hang on, at least I might fun out some of it. That's, I'll maybe get explained to me how these two are on the same page, but it seems you're in the dark about this as me. Um, I mean, I, there really wasn't anything to talk about in the match. As you say, it's kind of the worst wrestling when it's no bad and it's no good. It's just kind of there. And I mean, it's, ironically quite like Rocky Maivia but it's like he's almost like a yellow fruit pastel 
for it's like nobody really hates it, but nobody really loves it. It's just you put up with it because you might get a black current one, and it's I don't know. It's just it happened. It was better than the tag match, but these these two were utter utter free for all fodder. Well, I, I can't handle Mortal Kombat references, and I can't handle Sega references. But Fruit Pastel references were getting into my getting <laughs> into my yard. <laughs> We're getting closer to this than I understand. Um, yes, this was not good. Um, I think, well, I mean, they feature, I think, you know, they're going to get away from Rocky Maivia, at least in some way, shape or form. Yeah, it's clear they still like him. Yeah, we've got this fascinating parallel thing going on in that WCW attempted to, to replicate the Rocky Maivia story. And, and and so far they're doing a very good job, as in they're, they're both sides are doing just as bad a job getting over this really green underdog babyface champion far too soon before he's ready for it. Um, but at least my fear is having below average matches with below average wrestlers, unlike Prince Ayukara this month, who managed to have a managed to get Rey Mysterio boring chance, which is a, a whole level above. But yeah, like, you know, we're two matches into the show. We're two matches into WrestleMania, the big show. And the crowd couldn't give a fuck about anyone that's appeared. That's really impressive. Like, you know, there, there's been ten guys on this show, on your big show of the year. You know, and, and one of my takeaways from this match, you know, we've got a, we've got a tag match that's going nowhere later on the, stra- later on the show with Vader, Mankind, Bulldog and Owen that all mean on their own, more than the 10 guys or, you know, 12, 13 guys that we've seen so far due to the crowd. And it's like, well, you could have stretched those guys out a bit. You know, you could have put Vader and Mankind in a match and done Bulldog and Owen against Furnace and Lafont. But, you know, it wouldn't have got our, our, our big golden t- golden boy onto the show, I suppose. But, yeah... This, you know, just it wasn't as bad as the the, the match against Hunter Hurstelzi last month. That was significantly sloppier, but that's about the only thing I can praise it as. This was the Savio Vega of this was the Scotty Riggs of wrestling matches, <laughs> as in like nothing immediately objectionable and yet still really, really bad. Let's move on. Can we just say those green fruit pastels are the best ones? Carry on. You fucking strange boy. (laughs) (laughs) Tom Pettengill is backstage with Ken Shamrock. We then get backstage with Doc Hendricks. Hunter sounds in China. Nothing much said in either promo. And then we get we then get highlights from the Slammies. Next up, it's Hunter Salzy with China versus Goldust with Marlena. Goldust lays dormant before levelling Hunter with a clothesline. To think on another day, Dennis Rodman will be involved in this match. You can, uh, I say you can hear about more about this in volume number two. I better explain that now. Basically, WWF were negotiating with Dennis Rodman before WCW eventually signed him and had him appear at WCW Uncensored. That you can hear about in volume number two. WWF's plan with Rodman, one of the biggest names in American sports right now, was to have him in Goldust Corner for this match. I'll just leave that there as I carry on with my notes. We get a 10 punch in the corner as Goldust kisses Helsley before the 10th. He hits a reverse inverted atomic release, inverted atomic drop, looks real nice. This may already be Goldust's best in-ring performance in the WWF. 
He slides under the ropes, then slaps Helmsley, who falls and gets tied up in the ropes. Vince ribs run Hunter for the size of his nose. JR says, Goldust has Helmsley on Dream Street. Hunter comes off the top uh, off of the ropes and runs into a nice power slam. Hunter goes for a superplex, but instead just shoves Goldust to the floor. They both go down selling, and China has not moved much. Helmsley unzips Goldust's bodysuit and hits a chop before stamping on him repeatedly. Nice fire from both guys. Hunter hits a nice neck breaker, then a long abdominal stretch. A sleeper hold as Marlena has been about as dormant as China has, smoking on a cigar. Goldust feeds off of the crowd and fires back in the corner, but Hunter hits the DDT. A backslide from Goldust, a small package, and Helsley runs him over with a clothesline. Hunter goes off to the top, and Goldust counters with what I can only describe as a butt attack. JR says, I thought he hit him with his lawler. Hunter charges at Goldust, but ends up hitting the now vacant second turnbuckle. Goldust hits a bulldog. China is finally on the move towards Marlena. Halsey slips out of the curtain call. Goldust counters the pedigree, goes for a curtain call again before getting distracted by what's going on on the outside. Goldust frees Marlena by picking her up and putting her on the apron. Hunter runs at them, crashes into them both, and sends Marlena into the clutches of China, who ragdolls Marlena in a fantastic visual from side to the other. While all that's going on, Hunter hits a pedigree and wins the match. Del? Thank fuck for the bit at the end with China and Marlena. Because that there really wasn't much else to this. It it started all right. I mean, I like. I know you're not a big fan, but Hunter Helmsley, I think, is actually all right. He's he's kind of like a nineteen ninety. Well, he's kind of like a nineteen ninety five Harley Race. That's nineteen ninety seven. But he's got that kind of slow methodic thing going on. He's got the high knee gold dust. I've always liked. For he used to be the natural, and I mean, dare I say, he has taken a bit of a liberty with having this this conquistador outfit on because there's a few pound in that suit that wasn't there a couple of years ago but it, it just pretty much died a death in the middle um, I don't know whether it is because Dustin's put the weight on a wee bit I don't know whether it's I, I really don't know, it, it just seemed as if it stopped in a, a, a total hurry in the middle um, Helmsley tried to kind of pick it up a wee bit later on but there's only so much you can do when you're when you're yourself, kind of going upstream. Um, the two of them, I think, work well together. Hunter plays a good prick. Gold dust is gold dust. Um, but I mean, the match is. I mean, the, the best thing I can say about it so far, we've got three, and they are kind of going up a bit each time. It is getting slightly better. But um, the, the only thing to take away for us was that that China Marlena at the end. God only help us if we look at China and Rodman. I think that would probably be better than any of the matches we've seen so far with the two of them. That would but, be better than anything on this show. Aye, it's, that's that. That would even just the two of them squaring off would probably be better than the three matches we've seen so far. But um, it really was just about that kind of three four seconds of China and Marlena for me. It was the only visual that's been worth anything on this show so far. Rory. Regular listeners will know my feelings on Hunter Hurst Helmsley. They haven't changed. I, I don't think they'll ever change. But here, I was actually quite impressed by him. Yes. Book what I've just said, write it down, file it away. I really have just praised Hunter Hurst Helmsley. This, was, this really was quite good. Five minutes too long, but really quite good. I thought the first three or four minutes were gold dust, just going on the babyface fire attack. Were excellent. They were a throwback to me for the Dust, uh, Dustin Rose babyface run of 93-94. He's proved in the past that he can do this and he did it there. 
I personally think that when he turned face at the end of last year, they should have ha- had him out there trying to rip through guys much in that particular vein. He's just basically been a weird guy in a suit ever since he turned face. This was this is what we should have seen. And it was good, it was well booked. He got his early shine, as I've said. Our hunter got on control, actually showed a little bit more, actually tried to get some genuine heat this time. Yes, it was pretty laborious, but you're going to get that with this guy. And I don't think anybody really saw Goldust winning, which is a bit of a shame, even though he should have done, especially as we got this match again on Raw the week, uh, eight days afterwards, and I think the phrase there is diminishing returns. Uh, uh, this was, I'm with you, Dale, the, the visual of China ragdolling Marlene around. It was magnificent. It would have been slightly better if we hadn't seen it already on Raw back in the middle of February. Again, it's one of those save it for WrestleMania moments. That's, uh, I think it's going to be played back uh, for years to come, and deservedly so, all the same. One of those things that looks devastating, but it's probably extremely safe, which is what you want. Now, Hunter gets the clean-ish win. So we've got this match again eight days later with a non-clean finish. So they might, who knows, they might even go back there again uh, on the April pay-per-view, if we're very, very lucky. Uh, yes, uh, it did what it had to. Both guys did work hard with their obvious limitations. Uh, a blah match with um, thumbs leaning ever so slightly up. But so don't tell anybody I said that, because I still think Hunter Hurst absolutely sucks. I thought this was shockingly good. And we've had gold dust in the WWF for 18 months, if not a little bit longer. We've had Hunter Hurst Helmsley in the WWF for two years. And I, by and large, I don't think either guy has done anything above average or even memorable, I don't think. And yet, we had both men in Easily their best in-ring match in the WWF. We had Goldust getting a babyface reaction, which is testimony to something. I'm not, insane, I'm not entirely sure what, but it's testimony to something, be it just the way the match broke down or be it just Goldust showing some babyface fire that we haven't seen before. The match was good. The story they told was good. And the finish with China and Marlena I thought was fantastic. Um, you know, I just I just wonder if in six months' time it's going to be Hunter Hearst Helmsley managing China. It could be the way it's going. And Dale joked about Robert. If Robert had been in this match, China would have been one of the most over stars on the show come Raw the following night. Um, yeah, I, I was... Pleasant, you know, it's not to say it was a great match. It certainly wasn't. It's not even necessarily to say it was good. Um, but for... Both guys, this far exceeded my expectations. I think everyone got over as a result of it. Everyone has more coming out of the match than they came in with. That goes for Marlena's sell job, Goldust now potentially being something, Hunter Hearst Helmsley being in a match that wasn't immediately forgettable, and China, who, well, it's true, and China just being really good, doing very, very little, and a lot of it with China is purely aesthetics, but that's why it works. Um, you know, if, if anything, the the big problem they've got now, they can keep wanting to push Hunter Hearst Helms in. They strive for 18 months, two years to try and find him something that will help drag him up. They might have now found something that might eclipse him in the space of three months. Like, I, you know, I don't know, you know, if if China gets over at this rate, there's going to be a case of putting her with the main event act. And either that's either a case of forcing Hunter Hearst Helmsley on people as a main event act or putting her with someone else. 
Um, or just having her work as a as a female wrestler in a non-existent female division, which is also possible, but seems unlikely. Yeah. Uh, two surprise thumbs up from me, I would say that. We move on to Vader and Mankind with Paul Barrow versus the British Bulldog and Owen Hart for the WWF Tag Team titles. JR gets some comments from Owen and Bulldog, who seem united in their division. We start with Owen and Vader. Vader unloads on Owen in the corner, and again, Owen flies at Vader, who catches him into a slam. Owen runs at Vader again, who just powerbombs him. Vader pulls Owen into the corner and sets her a Vader bomb, but Bulldog punches him. That brings Mankind into the match, and he and Vader go after Bulldog. They go for a double-team move, but Bulldog hits a double clothesline. Bulldog regains control and puts Mankind in the sleeper. He falls to the outside, and the heels regain control. Vader hits a suplex for a two. He then whips Bulldog into the corner and then just launches himself at him. That didn't look fun at all. Vader hits a standard splash from the second rope, and Bulldog kicks out. Mankind hits a body drop and then tags in Vader. Vader comes off of the second rope, but Bulldog hits a power slam and gets a tag to Owen. Owen goes for a sunset flip. Vader sits out on it, but Owen moves. Owen runs the ropes and Vader just smashes him. Mankind comes off of the apron, hits an elbow onto Owen, who's briefly he's being held horizontally, cradled almost, by Vader. And Mankind trying to can't quite get him up. Look at that! And whoa! Oh, that would have been great. And oh, he's still trying. Oh. oh, that'll do it. Right out in front of his parents, Stu and Helen. What? Yes, Owen Hart. Stu and Helen are here. Trouble you. Right. Front row there, King. Oh no! Oh, right there in front of his mom and dad. Vince references Stu and Heller in attendance in the front row. Lord, that is deliriously <laughs> happy at this development. And if, you can tell, right? Because not only does he realise, shit, there's not long left to go in this match and I've got my Stuart Hart jokes to get in. He also thinks, shit, I need to get my quota in for the entire match. So the remainder of the match is Lawler in overdrive getting as many Stuart Hart jokes in as he can. And we carry on. Owen cattles into a DDT and goes for a running splash, but Mankind gets his knees up. Vader gets back in and gets going on Owen. Mankind goes for a run around the ringside, and Owen cattles into a belly-to-belly. Lawler, meanwhile, confirms that Shuha is indeed awake. Vader's mask comes off as Bulldog gets going on both men. Bulldog picks up Mankind for the power slam, but Mankind slips out into the mandible claw. Vader hits Owen, who sends Bulldog and Mankind tumbling to the floor. As both men are legal, the ref counts them both out. Rory. Phrase we use a lot when we talk about the WWF in particular on our podcasts, and that's book themselves into a corner. Never was it more appropriate here. I normally hate double count-out finishes, and indeed I hated this double count-out finish. But in the way, in a way there's nothing else you could really do here. Given what we now know about Owen and Bulldog, and indeed the standing with the company of Mankind and Vader, you couldn't really job anybody here. So ask, the very reasonable question to ask is, why book the match? Why? Because the match itself was actually really very good indeed. When everybody was involved in a paired off against who they needed to pair off against, all of the combinations worked really well. This might surprise people. I think the Bulldog-Mankind combination was particularly impressive in this match. I think they all had some interesting things to do. Uh, again, nobody dogged it. Everybody was out there giving their absolute best. It was 16 minutes long, this match. It felt about half that, and I mean that as a compliment. They put a lot in there. But the crowd weren't with it, because I think they suspected that, A, this match was going to end screwily, 
and B, the fact that everybody in here was at this point still being booked very much as a heel. So it's only real one place you could go and they, a, a Chicago crowd, they're going to know that. But there were some good exchanges. If you can look past the fact it's going to end the way you knew it was going to end, then this was actually some good stuff from four people who, to varying degrees, I admit I'm biased, I really like anyway. Yes, overlook the booking. Not always easy with WWF, I admit. And you've got a, you've got a good watch here, but the general point, double count-outs at WrestleMania, no thanks. No. I'm going to disagree with Ori. Um, the main reason between the end of a Hunter um, Goldust, the end of this, and then the end of the next one that will come on to, I know we don't do um, MVPs anymore, but um, you can smell Pat Patterson or Ori's, because this, this end is a bit strange, especially when it's the title match. I can understand maybe having a bit of a, a bit of skullduggery with a opener when it's a tag match and nobody really cares, but this is a title match. It should really mean something. It should have a decisive winner. The end wouldn't make any sense for anybody but mankind. He, he shouldn't want gold. He shouldn't want to win matches. He's a monster. He's sitting in basements. He's sitting in boiler rooms. He's sitting anywhere. He's playing with rats. He's He's pals with Paul Baylor, for fuck's sake. Um, but, I mean, this made sense for them. Um, it was nice to see him dig out the apron elbow, which I've not seen for a while without watching much WWF. I think the last time I've seen it was at ECW. It's been that long for I've seen it, but that was nice. Owen in the middle, I'm not going to shy away from it again. You know what I think about Owen Hart. He was an absolute fire when he tagged in. Um, the, the joy in Lawler when he found out Stu was there added to it, I thought. Um, I, I just thought business had, business had picked up here I mean you've seen it even through before when Mankind, Vader and Bearer uh, were all there and kind of leading into the match you thought it might actually start now I think this was the end of the free for all um, but I mean it was just a, just a solid match I mean you, you put these four in a, in a ring together you're going to get something decent and uh, the fact that it was interspersed with a commercial for Brian Pillman now having his hotline just makes it even better when you're going to be getting him we are, we are live, Mike. That's pretty entertaining. I would actually pay the, the dollar fifty nine a minute for that. I would pay considerably more for Sonny if she's going to be on the hotline with him. But that's a, a different hotline, I think. Hotline, hotlines aren't video, Dale. It wouldn't work. work. I'm sure I could get something out of her. Oh eight nine eight, Dale. I'm told. <laughs> I'll uh, just write that down. <laughs> and um, but no, I, I just like this. I mean, I like the four guys in it. I did like the finish. Um, I say I must disagree with Ori. It's these, I mean, every finish has got a place. Even even escaping the cage has got a finish. It's just we very rarely find it. But um, a double count out for this. I was I was pretty happy with it. I thought it was good, and it's certainly matching the night so far. And it continues the upward trend, which is good. Get the bill payers' permission, whether it's a dodgy wrestling hotline or otherwise. Do I need to ask my parents' permission? Because it may get a bit risky if I'm asking permission to phone. Just, just say, just say you're calling me in June. They'll understand. Good. Uh, Lawler's reaction when Vince tells him that Stu and Hallie in the front <laughs> row. This might be the happiest anyone's ever been, like, on any WRF you've ever heard. He's just delirious. There's like a, there's a moment of happiness and then a moment of panic at the realisation that there's not very long to go in the match. And he just, just kicks in. Lawler's like, okay, shit, I've got three minutes to get my stuff in. 
you know, I think also thinking that, well, you know, didn't want to do it during the next match, so that one's quite important. So he's just got going. Um, but onto the match itself, uh, you know, from a, from a bell-to-bell perspective, I, I wouldn't say this was inherently any worse than the, the match beforehand. In fact, there's probably a case it was slightly better. Um, but my surprise at how good the last match was relative to my expectations, along with what I would argue was a very good finish, as much as the finish was more just something going on while the finish happened to take place. This was possibly an equally as good match, marred by a lack of context and a horrendous finish. And so I'm quite negative on the match. And, you know, the the, the biggest thing, I think, Rory, you touched on this, was just don't do the match. Um, but Rory, I think you said that that given where Bulldog and Owen were going, they should have, you know, they didn't really have a choice here. I think, if anything, given the way Bulldog and Owen were going, like, all the more reason to take the titles off of them, wasn't it? Whether whether Vader and Mankind were the right opponents to do that with is another question. It comes back to the Furnace and the Fond thing that we, we've said for months now. Also, potentially comes back to the Eliminators thing that we've been, I've been pulling for the last four or five weeks. But I, for me, this was exactly the right time. You know, if you're going to take Owen and Bulldog in that direction, you could have easily had like a, a proper split here and then the reconciliation in a couple of weeks' time on Raw. I think that would have made just as much sense and you would have had a something different with Vader and Mankind slash a better team to beat them. Yeah, I mean, it was written to have Owen Bulldog against Furnace and Lafon one more time with Furnace and Lafon finally getting the win and even if it's a 100% clean win, in fact, no, it should have been a 100% clean win because that gives a full reason for Owen to turn on Bulldog or the other way around, depending on who gets pinned. It was right there for them and it would have been a terrific match like their match in your house final four was. Missed opportunity, but then this is the WWF. Dale, thoughts on that? No, I still stand by Ali, We get a really nice video package with Todd Pettengill narrating the story of the change in perspective uh, from the perspective of Bret Hart. I thought that was really nice. Todd was basically saying, you know, imagine that the crowd turned on you. Speaking like that, I thought that was quite effective in, in amongst a, a very nice video package chronicling the, the change of attitude in the last six months from Bret. And we move on to Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Bret Hart in a submission match with special guest referee Ken Shamrock. Austin actually walks through the entrance with a kind of glass shattering in front of him. It wasn't real glass, but it looked real nice. Brett comes out, and we get a pretty even reception for both guys. Austin starts with a takedown before the bell, and we brawl on the mat. No count-out or disqualification, apparently. Brett smacks Austin into the ring post, and the crowd are into this straight away. Austin crotches Brett on the guardrail, then clotheslines him into the crowd next to Albano and Atlas. We go deep into the crowd. Austin takes a drink from a fan. Shamrock is actually basically security at this point, more than his referee, as we climb into a sta- into the stands. We're deep into the stands. It's surrounded by a crowd from a wide-angle shot, but Austin, I think, attempts a pile driver. Brett counters it with a backdrop onto the steps in arguably one of the best spots of the match, not that we can really tell, uh, and we slowly eventually make our way back towards the ring. Brett drops a forearm from the guardrail and we're back to ringside as Austin counters Brett and launches him into the ring steps. Austin lines Brett up, then takes him out from the apron. Austin picks up part of the steps. Brett kicks Austin, who seems to awkwardly lose control. Back in the ring, Brett hits a swinging net breaker and then an elbow from the second rope. Brett starts working Austin's knee. He's wearing a knee brace over it. That's due to his injuries sustained last month. 
Brett works over the knee for the next couple of minutes. Austin hits a stunner against the run of play and mercifully we get a brief bit of rest. The fans start chanting for Austin. Jim Ross says, how well will a one-legged man do in a butt-kicking contest? Brett pulls out the figure four around the ring post. We get a big reaction for that. Brett grabs the ring bell and a chair. Brett wraps the chair around Austin's leg as the crowd come alive at the prospect of the spot Austin did on Brian Pillman. Austin escapes and wraps Brett around the head with a chair and he ascended to the turnbuckle and the crowd pop big for that. Austin takes one out of Brett's book by dropping a forearm from the second rope. Austin goes for a Russian leg sweep and locks in a crucifix submission of sorts. Austin sets for the Broston crown. We get a big pop. He shakes for a sharpshooter, but Brett escapes it. Austin gets whipped into the Spanish announcer's table and gets cut. Austin is dripping blood as Brett takes advantage mid-ring. Brett takes the chair and goes back to the knee again and again. Brett goes for a sharpshooter, but Austin rakes the eyes and Brett gets low-blowed. Brett gets whipped into the corner as Austin finds the second wind. Austin stomps on Brett in the corner and gives Brett two middle fingers. Austin hits a near-release superplex. Austin's face is more blood than skin now. Austin grabs some electrical cable. He chokes Brett with it, but Brett grabs the ring bell and hits Austin with it. Brett goes for a sharpshooter this time and gets it. Austin rises in pain, then fades, then fights as the crowd rally behind him. Brett falls forward but manages to keep the hold in. Austin reaches for the ropes, but he's miles away. Shamrock asks Austin if he gives up, but Austin has passed out. Shamrock breaks it up and there's a big pop as Brett is awarded the victory. Brett goes to lop in the sharpshooter again and Shamrock hits a throw on Brett. Shamrock shapes for a fight, but Brett backs off to a lot of booze. A referee later attempts to help Austin up. He gets a stunner for his troubles. Austin limps to the back on his own accord with some Austin chance picking up. Dell. I couldn't possibly take the limelight away for Rory McNamara. Rory, take it away. Yeah, we put up with a lot uh, as wrestling fans, don't we? In, just in this timeline, we put up with Fred Ottman wearing a Stormtrooper's helmet and falling through a wall. <laughs> we put up with Undertaker ascending through a video screen when he's in a casket. We put up with Hulk Hogan being dry-humped by somebody dressed in toilet roll. Things like this make it all worthwhile. I think we have just borne witness to, some might disagree, the G-O-A-T, as we put it, as the cool kids say, the greatest of all time. I almost feel like whatever I say about this match is going to do an injustice to it, so I'm not going to break it down blow by blow. But I'm just going to put this one out there for the listeners. What do you want from a professional wrestling match? Do you want two people who hate each other and can't wait to get get to grips with each other, here when the bell rings to Stone Cold Steve Austin diving onto Bret Hart. You want people who can't contain their hate for each other, here are two people punching the shit out of each other, going into the crowd to do so. You want people breaking out whatever they can to try to make the other person say I quit, or here's Bret Hart doing an elbow drop onto Austin's face from the guardrail. You want technical wrestling, here's Stone Cold Steve Austin wrapping Brett the Hitman Hart's arms around the back of his head and then putting his foot against the side of his cheeks. You want hardcore? Here's Brett Hart trying to pilmonize Austin's ankle. And here's Austin responding by belting him across the back with a chair. 
and you want drama, oh, we're going to give you drama. We're going to have a bloody feast, screaming in pain, Stone Cold Steve Austin, in that devastating submission hold, the sharpshooter, and he is going to nearly come so damn close to fighting out of it, so much so he knocks Bret Hart off his own feet, with the crowd cheering him 100%, but he can't quite do it. All that said, he still is not going to say submit. He needs the referee, who Ken Shamrock played his role in this perfectly, to say, Steve, you fought like a madman. You're incredible, mate, but I cannot let you put up with this anymore. I'm going to ring the damn bell. And even before you get to the perfectly executed culmination of the double turn, which we can talk about in a moment, this was sweet perfection. And if somehow you missed WrestleMania, and judging by the initial buy rates, a lot of people did, then beg, steal, borrow a copy of the tape, watch this match, watch it again, and then watch it again. Over to you, Del. Thank you. That's why I had to go to you first. You, you say the things that I want to say, but I kind of quite get them out. Well, funny enough, Dale, I, I was going to leave Roy to last just so you didn't have to follow that kind of monologue. But see, I know I can't. Eh? That's why I, I. That's why I just had to give him the floor. He, he deserved it, and he needed to get it out because I might accidentally touch on a good point, but it will purely be by accident. Roy knows what he's talking about, and that's why he's the best. Aside from yourself, obviously, Bob. Well saved. Um, oh, don't spoil it. <laughs> that's. Oh, that was just. This is why you watch wrestling, and it was, it was, it's something for everybody, but in the best possible way. I mean, you don't want to turn it into a, a camel, a horse designed by a committee. We just get in everybody something in here, but this just delivered for everybody that watched it, and it would probably even make the people that were tuning in for one thing appreciate something else because you're going to get folk watching a Bret Hart match for technical wrestling, but then you're going to get Austin coming out just kicking ass and take names and you got it, you got the blood in it you got the the brawl in it, I mean when do you ever see a a walking brawl in the WWF with, with stars like Bret Hart and I mean there's bits of this that felt like ECW and I, I like ECW but that lost its that lost its uh, it's panache quite quick in any walking brawl you see because you've probably seen one in the match before and you know you're going to see one in two matches time. This felt real and it was a it was a story from start to finish. I mean the build up at the start with the package, seeing Austin walking through for the back, that kind of, I mean it wasn't quite up there with Sean coming in for the rafters at 12 but that even did the little things like the glass shattering at the entranceway and Austin feeling like a big deal. You kind of hoped coming into this, Austin was going to come out a made man. And I, I mean, I don't think you can watch as many Martin Scorsese films as you want. I don't think I've ever seen a man made like this in my life. Um, it was just amazing to start to finish. The two of them were on the collision course. You seen Austin almost rolling back the years to stunning Steve with some of the technicalities he was pulling out. The um the little things that like even just sowing seeds early on in commentary actually came to fruition for a change. The the image at the end of Austin just in a pool of blood 
yelling at the crowd, yelling at Brett, yelling at Shamrock, yelling at God Almighty was just something to behold. And um, Rory's obviously far better at putting his across in an articulate way. I'm sure you'll do the same in a minute, Bob, but I'm very much the shit in this shit sandwich because you two know what you're talking about. But for me, it was... It was maybe one of the best matches I've ever seen. It was definitely one of the best stories I've ever seen. And apart from me just being a dick, it would have been a 10 out of 10, but it was definitely a 9.9999, however far you want to go. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, this is this is one of those once-in-a-decade matches that just seems to transcend everything else going on at the time and I'm I'm by no means a a big enough expert of of uh, of wrestling from the 1980s to be able to kind of put a, a match like you know Flair and Funk or Flair and Steamboat into into context but there's a match that just seems to even in amongst a a somewhat even playing field. There's a, there's a match that seems to transcend everything else, and you know, in in some ways, this wasn't a, a magnificent match. In that, you know, it, it was. If you want to break down the mechanics of the match, the first uh, was just a fairly generic walk brawl into the stands and walk back up with a, a nice spot that we couldn't see. The middle third was just the the heel relentlessly smashing up the. The, the, the face in a one-sided, fairly, you know, uneventful middle pair. And the last bit was the, the heel winning cleanly, which was brave. But uh, I, I say all that to kind of prove a point in that this match works not inherently because it was a, a great bell-to-bell match. This match works and this match is so brilliant because of, because of the two characters involved and because of the story that was unfolding in front of our eyes. I mean, I don't know whether it's accurate to call it a double turn because Brett did really turn six days before. But ultimately, the the thing that decides whether it is a double turn or not really was what did the crowd reaction start like and what did it finish like? As I kind of alluded to in my notes, the, the crowd reaction at the start, I would argue, was fairly simple. Brett's, Brett's popularity by osmosis from the last 12 years was mitigated by his recent character events. And Steve Austin's lack of familiarity with the crowd was improved by what was going on elsewhere, as in what was going on the last few weeks. All of that. And so that happens. And the match starts, and it's all fairly even. And then we go on, and it goes from... You know, I would say the, the the reactions, even at the end of the first seven or eight minutes, were still fairly even. It was only the middle third where Brett started working. And this is what I mean by about that the match in itself isn't what makes this stand out. Because if you if you treat Brett as the heel and Austin as the babyface, I don't actually think this match... If, if Brett goes into this match as a heel and Austin goes into this match as a face, I don't know that this is a great match. The story of the match is the is the turn, if you like. It's more the, the Bayface turn of Austin than it is the, the pre-existing turn of Brett. But the middle third is Brett cementing that, that spot as a heel. And then Austin, you know, how do I say showing vulnerability, but showing fight, showing honour against this guy that's, you know, relentlessly working his already injured knee. And then... Yeah, the, 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 the subtle, the, the kind of subtle bit with the, 
the bit where Austin gets thrown to the outside and gets cut, and then you know that fantastic you know setup with the with the submission move and the what it should be said, you know, not that it was particularly difficult, but a fantastic piece of camera work and a fantastic piece of directorial work to line that up and choose that shot of Austin just filling the screen with his face full of blood. It was a it was a fantastic blade job because it wasn't a big cut, but it covered his face very, very quickly. And then the storytelling to have Austin give up like that, as in just to have him pass out, you know, and there's, there's, there's always the thing that there is in in MMA to a point, like, you know, there isn't actually that much difference between tapping out and just passing out in the sense that you're still lost. But Austin got over because of this fight. But I think the the, the, the kicker, and it was Shamrock's role in this match, it says a lot that we've been discussing this match for 15 minutes, and I barely mentioned his name, and neither, neither did you two either, in part because we haven't really discussed the finish and the, and the turn and the aftermath. But Shamrock was almost a non-event in this match up until the bit immediately after the match. But yet, I think that bit made the match in a funny kind of way. We talk about this being a great match. I think the thing that sent it over the top was what happened immediately after. Brett wins the match, kind of releases the hold. And the, the, the crowd popped for the win. Let's be clear. And some, you know, Crowd pops are heels winning championships because they've seen something significant because they've seen a because they've seen a title change. The crowd popped for the win, and it was like you know, Brett's acting as a heel, but he still won cleanly. There's honour in that. I think the key point of this match, Rory, is is the bit that that followed it was Brett goes to lock in the, lock in the sharpshooter. Shamrock does the first thing of note he's done since he joined the company. A very simple and basic MMA type throw. And the crowd popped for that as well, I think in part just because it was Shamrock. and he, 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 I think also they popped for what was coming. And then Shamrock does his kind of MMA stance and Brett just walks off. And Rory, that, that, that was the turn. That was it. And that was the thing that I think set this over the top. As you say, Brett got popped uh, for, the, for, um, uh, for the win. So the crowd weren't really booing Brett at many points during this match. They were they were cheering Austin a lot, but they weren't really getting on Brett's case until when they solidified everything straight after the match. After all of this monumental drama, I actually love the simplicity of Brett just holding up Austin's leg and just kicking him in the knee when he's down. Why? Because he can. Now that is a heel. And you also know who's a heel? Somebody who backs down from a fight. And there's Ken Shamrock, ultimate fighter, Ken Shamrock. He wants to beat up Brett, the man who is just knocked out, effectively Stone Cold Steve Austin. And Brett just walks off. Brilliant. Del? The end of it was... You might laugh at me for saying this, but it kind of reminded me of uh, the Shawshank Redemption. For you, you watch this amazing story, and it peaks... Just before the end, when you see um, when you see Dufresne getting out and he's free in the back with the poster, and it's amazing. You could quite easily finish the finish the film there, but then uh, you get red getting out that bit later, and you see how it just adds on that wee bit extra to a story that you didn't really need, but after you got it, just made so much sense, and the bit. 
I mean, there was a reason, I think, why we never really spoke about Shamrock before the end of it, because I don't think, coming into this, I didn't really see as much as I think Ken Shamrock just looks cool in the few fights that I've seen him. He's a badass motherfucker. I didn't really see why he was there until he made his presence felt, and it had to be somebody of that ilk to make the ending make sense. And as Rory says, it's it's showing somebody that can stand up to Brett and then gives Brett the, the onus to back off. It gives the match itself, if it wasn't legitimate, it gives a, a sense of legitimacy, having him in there. And then just the way that it's him that made that call and then the, the afters that he has with Brett, as you said yourself, Bob, it just sent it over the edge. And... Um, Every every story needs a good ending, and you could you could arguably even cut this ending out, and it would still be a solid nine and a half out of ten match. But as you say, it's just that little nuance at the end with Shamrock involved in it with Brett and the Austin kind of just decrying any form of help to get him out of the ring. It just it was just a, a brilliant end to a brilliant match. Yeah, fruit pastels and Shawshank Redemption. You're you're coming back into my benchmark now, Dell. This is a um, and and to carry on with uh, with that reference, Shawshank Redemption was a a movie that released and received critical acclaim without doing much at the box office. This is a show that didn't do much of a box at the box office, but I think is as a result of this match going to be one that's going to be critically acclaimed. At least the matches. Um, yeah, it, they just—it was just the perfect story. I don't—I don't even know if it was. A, you know, that's the thing. We talk about great wrestling matches. There's, there's, there's a number of different ways of looking at that. So, some some matches can be great because of shock. Some matches can be great because of awe-inspiring stuff. Some matches can be great just because of bell-to-bell perfection. Some matches like this one can be great just because they're telling a great story. I don't know that this match had a big shock or it was bell-to-bell a great wrestling match. And yet the story was, I mean, I don't, I don't know that we've seen a story of a match get in the league that we've seen in this timeline, that we've just seen with this match. I don't know that we've had anything close. I can't think of anything. It's definitely not coming to mind. I I think of the best matches that we would have covered. They've either been ballistically good wrestling matches, or they've been, dare I say it, Comedically good wrestling matches, the, the, the tag match with, with Pillman, Sting, Flair and, and Arm from 95. Um, and in that kind of ballpark. But I don't know that we've ever had a story that's remotely had this kind of fan investment. The other one that would come to mind would have been Flair and Vader from the Starcade show I mentioned three or four years ago. Flair, yeah. Vader, Starcade. Even when I was looking at this, as soon as I got to the end and I said, this is definitely one of the, the best stories I've ever seen. It automatically puts you in that, that mindset where you try to think of others. And um, as you say about great wrestling match, I mean, one I always go back to a couple of years ago was Al Snow and Chris Benoit. What did it mean? In the, in the grander sense, what did Al Snow go into today? Come up to New York and play a book with Marty Gennetti. Um, I mean, for a story point, that never did end, but it was one of the best matches I've seen. But then for a story point of view, I, I would probably be more inclined to go maybe like a Brett Owen at Mania. When you've got that, kind of they, they had just kind of put the plant, the seed of the, 
the dissension and the brother story. That's pretty unique for what it was. But this was just this was just different different league, man. This was this was just reading magazines all your life and then getting into a bit of Chomsky or something. This was just different different league of storytelling. And Rory the the next big baby face has just been made, I think. Looks that way. And he's a baby face who gives the referee his finishing move. He did that six weeks ago in uh, in the Roar in uh, in the Sky Dome. Still being booked as a heel and was nominally booed out of the building. That was a very quiet crowd, so it didn't really count. But yeah, there you go. People cheered him out because he's there. He can't walk. He's got a massive cot on his head. He's just been in the war of all wars. Nobody's going to help him out. He's not going to be on no goddamn stretcher. He is going to get to the back himself because he's a fighter. And you know what? Here we are in the middle, the middle of 1997. People are going to get behind fighters. They want to. They want to cheer people who want to get out there and give their all for whatever purpose that might be. And that's why this Austin character has been gaining traction, gaining traction, gaining traction. And our WWF quite rightly pulled the trigger on this. A babyface turn because he's now going to be booked on that side of the ledger. But based on what we saw in the immediate aftermath on this match, and even his promo on Raw on the 31st of March, it doesn't look like his character is changing very much. It just looks like he's going to be turning his eye on a different set of characters, and that's a great thing. It looks like the WWF are going to let people cheer this guy for the very reasons they were getting behind him when he was still being booked as a heel. They're not going to have Steve Austin at conventions, kissing babies and shaking hands with suits and singing carols outside Titan Towers wearing a Santa hat. No, 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 no. He's going to be this guy wearing black tights, black boots, bald head, and he's going to kick people's asses. People have been cheering that for the last five months, and now they can. Keep it going, WWF, please. You've got a real person on your hands here. Could be a star. Let's keep it going. Absolute definition of anti-hero. Just total Travis Bickle, Alex DeLarge, Tony Montana, anti-hero. Just blast him in the moon, Bob. I don't understand any of those references, though. You, you, you're going further away. I've lost you again. Yeah, you have. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what it says for three years, three and a half years of dusty finishes, screwy finishes, finishes that protect main event acts, that the the most significant single stride forward any single character has made in any single match in, that we have covered was in a losing effort. I don't know what that says. Not that you could do this very often, but, you know, like we we spent you know, four weeks of Raw watching, you know, four weeks of Raw and 18 months of Nitro with big matches being presented without clean finishes. And yet we get a clean finish here, and the guy just became probably, arguably, perhaps, if not now, very soon to be the biggest babyface in the promotion, off of the back of a clean defeat, having submitted, not said I quit, but having passed out in a, in a heels finisher. You can't do it very often. You did it every week. It very, very quickly loses its effectiveness. And maybe in part, you know, maybe it's cause and effect. Maybe three years of shitty finishes makes this stand out more than it would have done otherwise. But I feel there's a message here that, you know, protecting acts, protecting acts makes no sense 
It's about elevating acts, or at the very least protecting them and maintaining their status on the card. You don't have to have a cop-out finish to protect an act. If an act, you know, Dell's dropped a load of movie references and other shit, and he's far better than that than I am. But movies and TV shows don't get over by the heroes never falling. They get over because we get to see what the heroes do after they fall. And this is this is the Austin story. It's the hero, the anti-hero, according to what you like, has fallen. And it's now his response. And in many ways, it was his response in the immediate aftermath. It was, that's what I mean. Like, people, we talk about this being a great match. I think the aftermath was more important. Like, if, if they'd have finished this match and Brett would have celebrated in the corner, put his hand in the air and fucked off, and then they'd have cut away. I think we would have been talking about a very, very good match with a very, very good story. But I think we would have got to Raw the following night and eight days later, and not necessarily much would have changed. The most important point of this match was the bit in the five minutes after the bell, was Brett walking away from a fight with Ken Shamrock. And then Steve Austin stuttering a referee. Like, Austin, who's just gone through so much pain that he, you know, he looks like he's been shot and he's, he's passed out through pain, is being offered help. Any ordinary babyface gets offered help, they take it. You know, you get, you get helped up to the back, you limp out off your own accord, you take your adulation. Austin's response to being helped was hitting his finisher, like having just come to. His instinct was to hit a finisher on someone that was trying to help him. Like, that's... That's it. That's why this worked. It was just so well presented. And it was like, yeah, this... You know, in many ways, the match here was secondary. This is why, you know, I don't want to be critical of the match, but, you know, this isn't going to be best match of the year because of the bell-to-bell action. This is going to be best match of the year because they took two characters from two very different places. And finish them half an hour later with two very, very different places and two very, very, you know, that's why this works. Rory, have the final word. Dave Meltzer is not the most generous person, let's say, when it comes to dishing out star ratings for WWF matches. He awarded this one the full five snowflakes. I think that says it all. Top Pettengill is backstage with the Nation of Domination. We move on next to the Nation of Domination. Farouk Crush, Xavier Vega with PG, Clarence Mason, PG-13, Clarence Mason, etc. Versus Ahmed Johnson and the Legion of Doom, Hawk and Animal in a Chicago street fight. Ahmed comes out wearing spikes alongside Hawk and Animal. Big reaction for LOD. The Nation regroup on the floor as the lackeys there in the ring get dealt with. Armin hits a somersault plancher over the guardrail onto Crush. Animal hits Farouk with a trash can. Hawk takes a big swing with a 2x4 at Vega. Vega ducks and the 2x4 bounces off of the turnbuckle straight into the air and back into Hawk's hand. It was really nice. Animal attempts to pile drive Farouk through the French announcer's table but seems to lose his balance and they both fall off. Fire extinguisher goes off near the announcers. Animal puts a trash can over Savio Vega's head and punches him. Ahmed solves the French announcer's table problem by slamming Farouk through it. 
Savio gets uh, thrown a rope. He ties it around Johnson's neck and makes him pause on the top rope, choking Ahmed. It's kind of a noose as well, actually. Animal gets a big parking sign and just whiffs Farouk over the head with it. Nation finally making the numbers game count. Farouk has the noose tied around Hawk's neck. Hawk manages to use it to yank him off the top to the floor. A fire extinguisher gets let off in front of Crush a lot. The rest of the nation climbs to the ring. We get the Doomsday device off the top and Crush is left in the ring with the faces. Crush gets pinned after a big hit by the 2x4 and that'll do that. The nation immediately storm the ring and carry on the fight. The nation extras get taken out by the faces. Another double Doomsday device to both members of PG-13. Del? This, I, I like this. It genuinely had absolutely no right I think being as good as it was, considering what what we've just seen, um, you don't get a lot of weapons in WWF. Considering that again, when it came off the back here with Austin lying out covered in blood and the brawl, and this could have died a death. But um, I thought this was really decent. I mean, I don't I don't really want to get onto my rant about the nation of domination and how much they should just be the biggest thing in wrestling at this point. But um, for a match in and of itself. I thought this was pretty decent, and as I say, coming after the back of what we've just seen, it really over-delivered for me. I thought this could have been death, but they actually did really good. Roy? This was damn good fun. It just suffered from its price on the card. I would have moved this up a few spots. Maybe revisionist history after watching this much, uh, watching this event a couple of times when, after it first aired eight days ago. Maybe I'd even have opened with it. You have the most intense brawl of all time, as in since everything of all time, and then you have a, a ten-minute garbage match, and I mean it in the best possible way. And it's a match which isn't taking itself taking itself too seriously. It's almost too much of a quote-unquote popcorn match before the main events. And let's say it was a lot of fun. There was lots of uh, innovative hit each other with cool things, uh, stuff going on, and it was never dull. The ten minutes bombed past when you consider the. Uh, the work rate propensities of the people involved, anything enjoyable from these six, because I'm not an LOD fan, uh, you very much take what you can get. I enjoyed it. There was always something to watch, almost too much at times. It was great fun. It just suffered from where it was on the card. But that's not its fault. Uh, the finish sucked, but considering they'd beaten the hell out of each other for 10 minutes, anything could justifiably keep somebody down for a three count, so I can let that slide. So, inconsequential fun. But we all need a bit of fun, fun in our lives, right? Yes, well, the, the, the match was so good, it, it not only covered for the fact it was in a death spot, but it also covered for the fact that Savio Vega was involved. Um, and it, uh, <laughs> I'm beginning it, to, it, I'm beginning to do sorry for him now. No, I'm not. I'm really not at all. <laughs> um, yeah, this was quite good. Um, yeah, I agree. This was a, a difficult spot for them uh, in a funny kind of way, but... I would not say the match was good, but it was so lively that it probably impacted on the main event. The crowd didn't have time to come down before the main event. Not that they, not that the crowd were flat for the main event. I think it was more a case of the main event being flat. Um, but yeah, um, a, a fine walking brawl, essentially. You know, funnily, they they talk up ECW being extremely crowdy wrestling. Well, all it does. This was a. This was this was more ECW than anything ECW and WF in the last six weeks. Um, just a big ass weapons based walking brawl. Like if this was the gangsters versus the eliminators with a couple of extra guys, this you know this would have been an ECW match. Did the right, extinguishers. Did the right team win, Bob? For you? Um, 
I'm not really sure I care. Really? I'm not really sure. I'm not, well, I'm not sure. Well, I, the, the nation for me are dead on arrival, but the, the nation for me are the new million-dollar stable. Wow. Million-dollar corporation. They're just, like, they're, just, they're just guys who've got nothing to do with. Like, well, the you know, the Armed Nation feud is still going on, so take from that what you will, really. Oh yeah, I, not nothing, not so. Not, as in, guys, if otherwise got nothing to do with it, being bundled into the nation of domination. Do you know seriously, Hank? If they actually sat down, I mean, I'm, I'm really biased in this, but do you know, Hank? If they sat down, they could easily make the nation the biggest thing in this company. Or is that just me? Um, they'd have to rework who was in it. Oh, like I, would, I, I mean, know. I'll be on it. I would get crushed to fuck. Crush, I know you don't like Savio Vega, but Crush would be first in my kill list. But Savio would be very, very... i try and shoot them both with the same bullet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if that's the question. Try and, uh, <laughs> and then, yeah, like, you know... I mean, I'll be honest, I, I just love that. I think as a, as a gimmick, I think this thing is gold. But it just needs absolutely pushed and pushed and pushed. I'd, they need to have so many fingers and so many buttons and just rail up. Everybody. I mean, everybody knows they've got black guys coming out with both eyes. They're called the nation. We know this is a nation of Islam ripoff. But I just think this could be so good as an utterly black as black as black, no white, no grey, just pure absolute heat magnet. And I think they could do so good with us. I mean, the the guys that's in it, Ron Simmons is Ron Simmons. I mean, you've got, I just think it could be so big. If they just had like a, an Al Sharpton type or even like a Khalil Muhammad type, I just think this could be like the biggest thing in wrestling. Well, at least in WWF. I mean, I think this could be up there with like an anti-NWO just with being monster heels and beating everybody and just pushing all the buttons eh? the south and kind of I just think that's going to be the biggest heel group ever but uh, it, it could but it ain't going to be the biggest heel group ever when it involves Crush Xavier Vega PG-13 and a lot of guys we haven't heard of but can you imagine it if they'd done like a ritual sacrifice on Crush he's the one white guy in the group make an example out of him but can you imagine the what what USA Network switchboard is on the next day? Imagine the ratings, though. Imagine the ratings. Oh, I don't know. When it, when, it, when it gets crashed off the air four weeks later, imagine the ratings then. No, 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 no. On the 24th of March Raw, the word ass was bleeped. Do you really think the USA <laughs> Network are going to go with a ritual hanging? Oh, <laughs> they did have the noose, though. They had the noose. <laughs> that's true, that's true. I mean, to be fair, I, I mean, a long-term plan of mine would also be trying somehow to work I mean, Johnson into it, which seems to be pretty hard, considering that's the kind of main antagonist. But maybe I'm just fantasising here, but I just think these guys could be so, 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 so good. <laughs> I mean, I talk about shooting Crush and Savio Vega with the same bullet. I think if you put through Crush and Savio Vega in a room and gave me a gun with two bullets, I'd probably shoot Savio twice. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there is that. Um, but, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, the, I, I, I agree with you, Dale. I, I think the nation has potential, but this isn't an R-rated movie and this isn't a show that's going out at midnight. There are... Sure. 
there are certain obligations that the WWE, you know, may I remind you that, what, four months ago, the WWF were running a weekly promo for a thing called Karate Fighters. <laughs> I forgot I mean, this, this uh, I, I don't even think juxtaposition would cover the, the the change between those two. I don't think the dictionary definition it stretches that far. Um, yeah. The only solace like, I can take is somewhere, sometime, there is a parallel universe in New Jack and Mustafa and the nation. It's the only thing that will give me peace. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, that... that See, now you're getting on board. Sure, Michaels comes out for commentary. His entrance takes so long that he's three and restarts. We get a typical batshit crazy promo from Sid who describes WrestleMania as the biggest event of the world. There's a guy in the crowd with a cardboard cut out of a pair of scissors which says Sid on one side and Arn on the other. <laughs> that was fucking brilliant. That was the best part of this show. The, the scissors moved. How good was that? They've watched a lot of Art Attack in their time. That's, uh, that's tremendous. That's tremendous. Really, really. Moving scissors with Sid and Arn. We talk about insider references. This was a, a next level. That was great. Anyway, to the main event. Psycho Sid versus The Undertaker for the WWF title. Jim Ross tells us that Undertaker has never lost at WrestleMania. The two square off and... Here comes Bret Hart. He wants the mic. Bret calls out Sean and calls him a faker and tells him to stay out of this match. He says when the Undertaker slammed the door on his head, he slammed the door on their friendship and calls Sid a fraud. For some reason, none of them attack him. Well, I say that. Sid actually does. He power bombs him. Good. That was very logical. Sid tells Bret to take his whining ass out of here. Taker cuts off Sid mid-promo and the match begins. Sid charges Taker in the corner, but Taker gets a boot up. Sean is actually contributing to commentary. Undertaker jumps at Sid in the corner, who catches him in a bear hug. A long bear hug. A break, then back to the bear hug. Undertaker tunnels to the outside. Sid baseball slides him over the Spanish announce table. Vincent Mayer reveals that both requested this will be a no-disqualification match. Sid comes off the top with an axe handle. The action is slow as Sid hits the powerbomb. The crowd are pretty flat. Big leg drop and another two. Undertaker hits a big flying clothesline. Taker sends Sid over the guardrail. They trade shots. Undertaker hits a power slam mid-ring and then goes for a nerd hold. Sid goes to the second rope. Hits a shove, I'd call it. The crowd are incredibly flat. Undertaker gets Sid on the top and throws him off. Undertaker goes to the top himself and hits a clothesline. Taker signals for the end. Undertaker goes for a tombstone. Sid skillfully flips over it and hits a tombstone of his own. That was fantastic. Talk about this match being flat. That was great. Undertaker puts Sid in a tombstone position. Sid basically backward rolled into his own tombstone. That was great. Spilled to the outside. Brack comes out of the chair and hits uh, hits Sid over the back with it. They get Brack in the ring. Undertaker gets Sid up for a chokeslam and Sid barely kicks out for a nice near fall. Sid sets the power bomb. Out comes Brett again. Sean quite rightly says, "Jesus!" <laughs> Sid fights Brett off. Undertaker hits the tombstone for a big pop and wins the match. Rory, this really could have been a bit of a disaster on WrestleMania Eight Hogan v Sid proportions. And given the length of this match, I've got the lengths in front of me now. This one twenty-one nineteen, which was only forty-six seconds shorter than Brett v Austin. This really wasn't terrible, you know. It sat in that weird subspace between 
watchable and shockingly decent. Definitely no more than that. It's like it was way too long. But both these guys, oh, Sid aside maybe with, even Sid only gave us about five rest holds in this one. That's how good this was. No, in all seriousness, they both really tried their best to fill the time. That's probably why Brett got involved about 10,000 times as well. There were some good spots here. I think the tombstone reversal that you mentioned there, Bob. I mean, that was magnificent. I mean, Sid will never do anything more impressive in a wrestling ring than that. Absolutely not. I mean, when Sid did the over-the-top rope sunset flip to Brett in their match on Raw in February, I thought with Perhaps some justification that was as good as it was going to get for him. And now here he is doing a backward roll into a tombstone. Terrific. And the fact that he even did the arms across the chest pin. You cheeky beggar, I thought. Uh, he was never going to get the win there. The crowd were flat, even despite their best efforts, because I think everybody knew that Undertaker was going to win this one. Even given the face-to-face dynamic, there was very little drama there. I think that's one of the reasons this match could have done with being at least five, possibly even five minutes, at least even half shorter than it was, to be perfectly honest. And the Brett Fearance got way too much. I didn't agree with much what Sean said on commentary, but he let his true feelings come through there, and uh, he was right too on that one. But it was fine. The ending was decisive enough. The crowd did pop for it. It was absolutely the right result. They both did their best, all their good. This was not a dud by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but they were booked into a really difficult situation, having to fill the time they could. Book to your... Book to the strength of the people you're dealing with. I don't think anybody would really have felt short-changed if this match had been 10 or 11 minutes. It didn't need to be an epic 20, 21 minutes. But it was fine. It accomplished its big purpose. Title change at WrestleMania. Nice pop for the, the good guy. Long service medal. No harm done. Del? Mm, it, it kind of over-delivered again. Um, similar to the, the Chicago Street fight for me. I, was, I never had big expectations. Granted, Taker seems to be kind of lumbered with these guys almost year in, year in. Um, I think that the only time I can... As soon as Jim Ross had said that he was undefeated at the start, I started kind of trying to go back and remember who he kind of been up against before and I think the only one that I could think of that was under kind of six and a half feet was Jake Roberts and Jake wasn't exactly in the best of places at the time and I mean it, it was better than Bundy I'll tell you that um, I didn't have a lot of expectations going into it but I thought the two of them did really well and that as you said two of have said that that tombstone bit in the middle was something else for, for Sid Judy I've never seen anything like that in my life with him you're Undertaker. That you're you're a very brave man. Trust me with that spot because you start the spot, but you lose control of it very, very quickly. Pretty much. And I mean, the, the, I mean, there's not a lot of people in the world that could get away with it. There's a hell of a lot of people more athletic than Sid, but you've got to have the size to be able to take the taker. And he done it brilliant. I mean, I don't know whether that's something that they'd kind of maybe try to even practice if you can imagine the Undertaker preparing matches of all things but if that's something that wasn't planned before or rehearsed that was something else um, I mean there was a lot of big moves in it there was a lot of long selling in it there is times where it gets pretty slow pretty quick but it, it did feel like a big match I mean you don't get I mean Vince likes to kind of drop in his references to, to Sugar Ray and things I mean I know he's a big boxing guy but how how many kind of athletes come along where you, you want to watch the kind of heavyweight boxing fights where it's like 
people which pass their prime or they're a couple of pound over and it, it gets sluggy. I mean, they're a lot of holding and this is kind of like a wrestling equivalent of that where you get these big guys in and there's going to be a couple of haymakers but there's going to be some some holding through it and they did do that and I think they, they kind of knew that going in. I think that's why it was an ODQ. That's why Brett came out. I mean, the Brett record kind of got played to death but it did kind of break it up a bit especially when Rory talks about timings and all. I mean, this being 40, 50 seconds less than that, whatever it was we've seen between Brett and Steve Austin, this had no right been anywhere near that ballpark, but considering how long they go and how kind of many limitations there is in it, they actually did really, really well. I just hope that I just hope that Taker gets a better run this time, obviously, than the, the last one that he got kind of six, seven years ago. That kind of ended in a bit of a, a calamity, but... Um, I'm really chuffed about this, and I think it was, it was maybe just a couple of months late for Sid. Um, taking the reactions that he was getting maybe four or five months ago were just, where the hell did that come from? But um, I think it was maybe just a month or two late on that, but they, they made the most and captivated on it, and the um, the right guy won, and as I said, I just hope they get the next couple of months turns out better than the, the last time, but it really did over-deliver. I think you both been a bit kind on this. I thought this was pretty awful. Uh, as the main event goes, I mean, you know, what what I found strange, you know, I kind of said last month, the logical thing to do with Sid and Undertaker would make it a no disqualification match so you can go through a lot of smoke and mirrors. And then we got three or four minutes into the match and we tumble to the outside and Vince says, oh, they requested this match be no disqualification. Like, where to go, Vince? Announce the stipulation <laughs> of your most important match of your most important show four minutes into said match. Not the smartest thing to do. I thought, okay, fine. I don't really care about that. It makes sense because from a from, from when you're putting together the match standpoint, you don't want these... If you've got 20 minutes for these guys to fill... Let them brawl around a bit. Now, admittedly, it doesn't help that they placed the the street fight immediately before this. It probably doesn't even help they place the street fight on this show at all. But like, okay, that's fine. There are there are a hundred different ways of having a no disqualification match. There's a different way you could present it that could have protected both of these guys and that could have made a decent match. As a bell to bell match, this was really bad. Like this wasn't Sid trying, this wasn't Undertaker showing off his best skills. This was Undertaker's winning the match, so he has to do a lot of the selling. And I think we've seen enough of Undertaker to know now that Undertaker's far better off when he's leading matches, although invariably it means he's going to lose them. And then, you know, Sid, like, it made sense. A lot of it made sense. Sid working a bear hug made sense. But I'm like, lads, this is the main event of WrestleMania. We don't need a four-minute bear hug spot in the middle of this match. Find something better. Um, That being said, the bell-to-bell match was bad, but this match did have a few things going for it. One was the, the constant interference from Brett helped. Two was that tombstone spot, which was really good. And three, and the one thing we didn't really, we haven't really praised throughout this show, and the one thing, you know, we, we could have done two hours on Bretton Austin, but the one thing we didn't really talk about with Bretton Austin was the strength of the announcing in that match. And the strength of the announcing in this match, in that Shawn Michaels came in, and we've heard Shawn Michaels on commentary before with his tail up. He can do a lot of damage to a match. Shawn Michaels was working this match. Not perfectly, it was Shawn, you know. 
But the bit where he gets asked about which is the which is the worst move to take, the power bomb or the tombstone, he thought they both hurt like hell. That really helped. Um, and we got to the end. It kind of reinforced Brett's heel turn. We'll cover the, the, the mechanics of that later in the show. And it got Undertaker over as the rightful winner and the rightful champion. I do feel a bit sorry for Sid, who I think has been caught in amongst this. Go back six months. Sid was this wild card babyface on the rise. Dare I say it, Sid was kind of in the Steve Austin spot. The guy presented as a heel, but was so... I don't want to use one-dimensional in a negative sense, but was so cut and dry that you couldn't help but root for Sid because he's like, yeah, I'm just going to come here and kick ass. The promise made no sense. The wrestling wasn't very good, but there was very little black... There was only little that wasn't black or white with Sid. And that's why it worked at MSG because he had an opponent that fans wanted to boo. And so people just cheered him. But you put him in this kind of match and Sid's, you know, Sid never really turned face and he never really turned back heel, I suppose one would lead into the other. If he never really turned face, he would never have to really turn heel. The fact of the matter is, he's really been getting a babyface reaction for most of his run. Then you put him in a match with Undertaker that's just an awkward fit. And this was always the plan. Like the thing that changed was Brett and Sean. This was always going to be the plan. Whether this match should go on last was a, is a separate question. Um, but I kind of feel a bit sorry for Sid, but Undertaker is the champion. That is a far better spot coming out of WrestleMania than Sid is, I will say that. Um, Dal, any other thoughts slash thoughts on the match placement? I think they did the best with what they could, at least for a main event. The the build up to me, I I didn't know whether it was just because I'd kind of fell away from Raw in the kind of couple of months building up to it. But I said it earlier, it just felt like they didn't know what they wanted to do, and if that means getting lumbered where I take a Sid main if it gives you a Brett Austin middle. I'm happy with that. Um, the Brett stuff did get a bit much kind of coming out once at the start. That made sense. Then in the middle, then at the end. But they kind of knew that they needed something to fill in the gaps here because the the show needed to to finish at a, at a respectable time for the pay-per-view buyers and the pay-per-view kind of distributors but then at the same time when you're lumbered with these two guys it's it's a bit of a drag to get it to go this long but they done what they needed to do I mean me and Rory did maybe come across as a bit kind in the match itself and in hindsight it was pretty shit but it did a job and I mean these two are main event you see a guy like I mean you walk down the street and you go to buy a pint of milk and you walk in he said you do it's like, shit, that, that guy's he's a big deal. And I don't think I would run in to take her if I was going to buy milk, but if I did, I would probably shit myself as well. Well, it'd, these... be fa- it'd be the fake one, as, as we would go back to the summer <laughs> of 94, where he was... Was he spotted in a cheese shop, the fake Undertaker? Was that what it was? Uh, uh, a it was, telly? Is that what it was? It was, it? Uh, whenever they were doing the Leslie Nielsen stick, we, I, seen him in the, I seen him in the barbers. Uh, <laughs> Um, he would probably be buying Roller Cola surely if it was if it was Brian Lee. I don't think he'd be buying Coke. But um I mean the two guys are a big deal. I mean you can see what they were trying to do with it. I just I don't think it came I don't think it came together quite as they're two big names on a marquee, but actually watching the match it's it's a bit of a different a bit of a different story I would say. Rory, any more thoughts? Well, two things really. One, I bet you Sid likes green fruit pastels as well. 
and two briefly on the match placements. Was it the most important match going into the show? No, it wasn't. And I've waxed lyrical about you know what match I'd gladly do, so if you had another nine hours, I'd carry on doing. And probably even beyond that as well. However, I'm old school. It's WrestleMania. You want the WWF Championship match going on last. Now, whether we should really have ever got to a position where Psycho Sid was defending the belt against Undertaker, that's another question. That's where we were. That's what we got. And I really, really, I might live to regret this, but I don't mind that being the case. There, take it and move on quickly before I change my mind. Well, dare I say, look back a couple of years ago, how much did we mourn when Bret Hart was in the mid-card and Roddy Piper and Jerry Lawler were in the main? So we can't have it everywhere. And how much does he weigh? And dare I say, if if 40% of my praise and Bret and Austin was what came after the second bell, you put it on last, people might have got up and left. Um, yeah. and people might have turned off at home, etc., etc. They also might have been cut short due to time. Stuff can happen. Um, yeah, I'll give them. A, yeah, I, 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 I'm just like I, I you know, we, we're talking about Brett and Austin being one of the greatest matches we've ever seen, and I don't think it. It not being in the main event really affects that, so I'm um, I'm okay with it. And there is there is also the old school thought that the championship should always go on last. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, in a weird kind of way, I was just about letting off that. Uh, Dell, your other thoughts on the show and a score rating out of ten? I wasn't far off with my couple of hours' time. That I said. Uh, no, you are. Um, I'm see, to be honest, I'm I'm still not really a lot further forward for a score point of view. But running through it, obvious exceptions aside, there was a lot of dross in this. Um, there really wasn't anything but the, the one the one stand the main event did kind of what we were expecting probably over delivered a bit for me the street fight was pretty decent to see on WWF TV the tag match in the middle was pretty good I liked the finish personally the visually China Marlena was really cool but the, the first couple it, it did get slightly better each time and if it wasn't for that kind of half hour, whatever it was, kind of first shot of the first shot of the the um the video up into the up into Austin leaving the ring, if it wasn't for that half hour or so, this could easily be a, a two or a three for me. But having that match in the middle, which as I say is nine point nine 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 out of ten, I think it's pretty fair to give it say a six and a half overall. Roy. When I was watching this show live, as I said in the preamble, this really was a decent watch. Things seem to zoom by, even the longer matches, and it always seems to be something to enjoy. Now, as I won't here on the podcast, when we break each match down individually, there really was a lot to dislike. A lot to really, really dislike, especially in the early going. But with the wonders of VHS technology we have available to, to us these days, you can just press the fast-forward button when the Coliseum video is released in two or three weeks' time, and you can start at roundabout Hunter Hearst Helmsley and Goldust, if you have a reasonably strong stomach, and then you've got a pretty decent two-hour viewpoint. There's a match on here that I quite liked, as <laughs> keen-eyed listeners, keen-eyed listeners might well have picked up on. So again, I'm not going to talk about that in this, uh, although it does play into my play into my score. This was just about worthy of the name of WrestleMania, and I'm probably being a little bit generous there. It, given the fact it was in Chicago, in a rather, again, to use that word, dingy 
venue, it still felt really quite important to me. And I would say overall, even given what we've disliked, I'd probably say it was a better overall watch from start to finish than WrestleMania 12. Certainly the WrestleMania 11, but God, we don't need to bring that horror show up again. You have to watch WrestleManias because they are the biggest show of the year. There's still things you have to sit through, even goddamn WrestleMania 1, or even the 10 hours that was WrestleMania 4. Given that, and the fact that you've got what I think is the greatest wrestling match I've ever seen, well, is the greatest wrestling match I've ever seen, and it only happened nine days ago, I still think it will end up being the greatest wrestling match I will ever see. I'll take a look. That is almost an essential watch. So it's almost impossible to rate using our standard system, but I'm going to try. Taking everything into consideration, the match of all matches, some fun stuff elsewhere, a popular person winning the WWF title. It's a real sum of its part stuff. I've got to go six, taking everything into account, but it is the most must-watch six that you'll ever see. And I don't need to tell you the score that really makes up most of that six. Well, uh, my my overall thoughts were probably going to have sounded more negative than yours. And I get the feeling I might be giving it a higher score than both of you did. Um, yeah, the first two matches are completely irrelevant. But, you know, by the end of the night, you forget them. We discussed them 90 minutes ago. I've already forgotten them. Um, there's a fantastic match on this show. There's about three others that probably exceeded my expectations. And the other, probably even Undertaker and Sid in the sense that, you know, there was enough going on. And there was a match involving Vader Mankind, Bulldog and Owen that was actually quite good, even if there were a lot of things going against it. Um, I give this show overall 7.5 out of 10. First of all, I want to apologize. What? I'd like to apologize to all my fans over in Germany. I'd like to apologize to all my great fans over in Great Britain. Actually, I'd like to apologize to all my fans all over Europe, all over Japan and the Far East. I'd like to apologize to my fans in the Middle East, all the way as far down as South Africa. And I'd especially like to apologize to all my great fans in Canada. For what? Be quiet, please. And to you, my fans right here across the United States of America. To you, I apologize for nothing. You know, it seems really strange to me that no matter how much I try, that when I beat Stone Cold Steve Austin to a bloody pulp, you know, I find myself, no matter how much I win, when I walk back to the dressing room, the way you American fans treat me across the United States of America, I feel like I lost. 
and you take that gutless creep like Stone Cold Steve Austin and beat him to a bloody pulp, even though he knows and you all know that he lost, you cheer him on the way back to the dressing room like he won. The Raw after WrestleMania starts with a tag title match with Owen and the Bulldog defending against the Headbangers. The LOD join us in a picture-in-picture to tell us that they want the tag titles that are in your house. The champs argue over Owen not going for a pinfall, match gets thrown out and then it finally happens. At last. Owen grabs the mic and tells the gutless coward Bulldog that he could beat him at any time. Davey of course accepts a European title match with Owen. Mankind turns up in the boiler room who tells us that he's gone, that he is Paul Bearer. Uncle Paul, please come back and don't make me find you. Brett briefly appears on the Titan Tron. He has something to say to the American people and he wants all the time he needs. Hunter beats Bart Gunn with the pedigree after China beats up Bart on the outside. Triple A's El Mosco, Hysteria and Absimo Negro face Venom, Supernova and Discovery. We hear from Brett again who's still asking for his time. Nova beats Abysmo with Arana into a pin. We get a pre-recorded interview by Vince with Rocky Maivia and Johnson. Rocky's Maivia and Johnson, thanks Rory. Johnson couldn't stand by and let those three guys hurt his son, which is why he interfered at WrestleMania and they hug afterwards. With a 450 splash, Flash Funk defeats Brooklyn Brawler, obviously. Shamrock joins in for a chat. He had to stop the submission match because Austin was in severe shape and couldn't protect himself. It's also why he had to prevent Brett attacking him after the match. But Austin is one of the toughest guys he's ever seen. Out comes Brett. This is a promo you're going to hear just spliced in around these TVs because it's so long. Brett starts our second hour with the time he's requested. He wants to apologise to his fans everywhere in the world, especially in Canada. To the American fans, though, he apologises for nothing. The way fans cheered a lousy, stinking hyena like Austin after he beat him to a body pulp makes Brett feel like he lost. Brett came back to clean up the WWF, but he was screwed at every turn and none of his supposed fans in America seemed to care. Brett says they have abandoned him. In America, they don't respect right and wrong. It's obvious American fans don't respect me, and the fact is, I don't respect you. From here on in, the American wrestling fans can kiss my ass. Before we can digest that, here's Sean. He suggests that Brett is obsessed with the WWF title. Brett's supposed upstanding character is a facade. Sean does this because he likes it. Brett does it because he thinks all of this is yours. Fans can cheer and boo whoever they want. To make up the point, Sean informs Brett about the First Amendment. How did you know I was in the girly magazine? You had to flip through the pages just a little bit. With that, Brett snaps and attacks Sean from behind and locks in the figure four round the ring post. Sid comes down to run off Brett while Sean just rides in agony. We join Rocky Maivia versus Leaf Cassidy in progress. Brett comes back to booze and joins the commentary team. I didn't snap, I opened my eyes. Rocky wins with a body press. Brett says, you talk about wickedly bad, I'll show you wickedly bad. He then gets up and attacks my beer without any provocation. He even gives a younger fan the finger. Ahmed and Savio go to a no contest when the nation get involved. Ahmed makes a deal. He suggests that if he beats just one member of the nation, they leave the WWF. 
not the fairest of deals there Ahmed I've got a feeling that was meant to be a three on one but because Farouk's injured uh, I think they've changed that that will happen at the pay-per-view next month we close with a somewhat rushed Undertaker promo he welcomes us to the dark days of the WWF Paul Bearer comes to ringside and seemingly pleads forgiveness Mankind comes through on the Titantron and says he needs Uncle Paul as we fade to black so I got one thing on my mind after being screwed over by everybody in the World Wrestling Federation after being by, abandoned by all you good fans right here in the United States of America I decide that I'm going to go into this submission match with Stone Cold Steve Austin I give him just a little bit of what he deserves just a good old fast ass whipping And so when I do it, when I actually take that lousy, stinking hyena, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and beat him to a bloody pulp, you somehow find it in your hearts to abandon me and cheer for him. The poisonous fueling well, from Bret Hart. I've proven myself so many times here in the World Wrestling Federation. And I've tried to be everything that you wanted me to be. But it seems to me that you don't understand. You don't understand what it means to have dignity, to have poise. To bring prestige to the World Wrestling Federation. To be a man that has a, that brings a little class. Because you'd rather cheer for heroes like Charles Manson and, and, and O.J. Simpson. And... Nobody glorifies criminal conduct like the Americans do. In all the countries that I go to around the world... They still respect what's right and what's wrong. Respect. Now that we've made everything really clear with ourselves here tonight, it's obvious to me that all you American wrestling fans coast to coast, you don't respect me. Well, the fact is, I don't respect you. Our opening contest on Raw is War on the 31st of March is the post-divorce match between Owen and Bulldog for the European Championship. This turns out to be another very good back and forth match between the two. The ref gets bumped, Owen grabs a chair, but Davey blocks it. He goes to use it, but here comes Brett. He, talks to, he takes down Bulldog and chokes him with the chair and breaks up Owen and Bulldog when they try to go back at it. On the mic, Brett says American fans want the Hart family to fight. What are you fighting for? He tells Owen and Bulldog that he needs them. All families in America seem to hate each other. Brett puts over his famous match with Davey at Wembley then blames the WWF for driving a wedge between him and Owen. Nobody was there for Owen more than he was. He needs the help of Owen and Davey. 
Owen, I love you. Owen breaks down in tears and all three men hug. El Moscow takes on Supernova. Moscow wins with a split leg moonsault. The LOD natter in the ring with JR. The usual 200 decibel stuff from the Warriors here. The gist is they will take the belts from Owen and Bulldog on In Your House. The real Double J beats Jerry Fox with a pump handle slam. Honky Tonk Man might have found his protege. He presents Jesse with a guitar, but of course it ends up being smashed to pieces. Honky's search goes on. Savio and Crush beat Rod Bell and Adam O'Brien. HBK joins us on the phone. He has a lot to say to Brett, but he won't discuss it just yet. He'll discuss it next week with Brett in person. Paul Bearer comes out. He apologises to Undertaker and wants him to come back home. Undertaker responds by telling us that he can never forget betrayal, but he may have to forgive it. After their pass, the Undertaker owes Bearer. He presents Paul with the world title belt, then slugs him. Bearer begs off and slams, and then Mankind climbs from under the ring and blindsides the Undertaker with some flash paper. Sid chases Mankind off whilst Undertaker staggers through the crowd. Sid reacts in the locker room. He shouts a lot. He suggests that Mankind should not play with fire. Now we get Hunter versus Goldust for what seems like the umpteenth time. China appears on the ramp as Goldust hits the curtain call, then she interferes with some vicious kicks for the DQ. Amazingly, Pat Patterson of all people gets involved and goes after Hunter. China and Hunter recover though and they give him a kicking. Goldust and China stare each other down before she gets led away. Austin comes in for an interview with Vince. He never said, I quit at WrestleMania. Therefore, Bretton did not get the job done. People can think whatever they like about him, but the bottom line is he ain't changing for nobody. Whether he is against a good guy or a bad guy, all he ever sets out to do is whip somebody's ass. He calls out Brett, who appears on the screen. He played and simple, kicked Austin's ass at WrestleMania. Brett is the real king of the jungle. He says he's finished with Austin, but Stone Cold says Brett would have to kill him first. It seems the feud isn't over. Brett goes to the Intercontinental title against Rocky Maivia. Even here, Maivia really struggles to get the crowd behind him. Brett almost takes the win with a body press roll through and then he settles for a ring post figure four. Holds on until he gets DQ'd. Austin appears, but Owen and Bulldog quickly beat him down and the LOD run them off. Now, Brett, I have tried and tried and tried to take the high road. Now, I am, I am in no shape to wrestle, and I know, I know, you're tougher than me, blah, 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 the whole thing. I admit that, that's fine. I don't have to be number one, Brett. I don't obsess like you do. I do this because I like it. You do it because in your mind, Mark Man, you really think all of this is yours. Now, what you need to understand is that every time they reach into their pocket and pay money to watch you, me, or anybody else, they have the right to cheer or boo anybody they want. Now, hey, hey, you don't have to tell me, they're cheering me now, but they booed, they booed me before, but you didn't see me get all bent out of shape about it. You want to know why, Brett? It's because in this country, we have something that's called the First Amendment. And that, and that amendment allows us to live our lives the way we see fit, as long as it is causing harm 
But you know what? If that guy there wants to stick a belly button piercing through his navel, he can do it whether you like it or not. It's called freedom of expression. If that girl over there chooses to go out with someone that you don't approve of, tough kitty said to kitty, and she's going to do it. Now, I don't want to get on my high and mighty roller coaster here, Brett, but you, my friend, have got to look at this. I'm in no shape to go, but if you want to go, what the hell? Let's go now. Oh, don't tell me. Red Hart and Shawn Michaels. Michaels is in no condition. He is in no condition well, what's to wrestle tonight been? because he's got more guts you than brains. Right. We've got a saying in the United States of America, and it's called America. Love it or leave it. All right, as we enter our number four of this show, um, Andy's somewhat in sight, but we, we have some some matter of a couple of weeks of television to discuss, as you would have would have heard in the in the notes and whatnot. Uh, there is only one thing to discuss on the end. Um, I will have done my best to cut down the twenty two minute Bret Hart Shawn Michaels segment into something palatable for for the sake of the podcast. I don't want a, a fifteen minute long stretch of audio on the show. Let's say that. Um. Dale, let's start with you. Uh, the if if the Bret Hart turn took place at WrestleMania, I think it's very safe to say that they were mindful that not all the people watching Raw would have seen it, and they were also mindful that, unlike Hulk Hogan, as kind of Dave Meltzer said in the Observer, the Hulk Hogan turn worked because WCW fans kind of just want to boo Hulk Hogan. WF fans do kind of just want to cheer Bret Hart. There is something about tenure and something about notoriety and something about popularity that once a guy gets to a certain point, he's very much like Teflon. It just, you know, nothing really sticks. So trying to make a heel turn stick is quite difficult. And it was sure as hell on the pay-per-view itself regarding the regarding the turn itself and regarding what happened post-match and what happened during the title match. Um, but, Del, my, my praise of the Brett turn to this stage falls down a little with this crowbarred but perhaps necessary anti-USA stuff because this is the first bit of this story that doesn't really feel genuine and organic. I'm going to disagree because that was actually what got me in. Um, as good as the match was, it's always about the follow-up. I mean, wrestling, ask anybody in it, they don't have an off-season. It's 365 days. Many is the Super Bowl, but then they don't go into an off-season. It starts gearing back up again. Um, I, I really liked it. Um, the, the the little digs early on about Sean and his smile and his his Playgirl magazine. It, this was really kind of seen at what I'd said earlier on about the the bitterness going through bitching and the actual anger. And when he gets angry, it's it's gold for me. Um, I really bought into the America stuff. The the two kind of best things. 
I've seen this month we kind of getting back into Fed stuff was the the nation that I've already said my bit on it was kind of going the anti the anti way where it was kind of what you've seen a death and then a funeral and then a wake with Brett you've kind of seen the stuff with, with Vince and that at the end of the cage match it was almost like a birth and then moving on to the the christening at a match at Mania and then this was like the coming age this was the confirmation of the bar mitzvah whatever side of it whatever side of the fence that you're on, but he really kind of became who he's going to be. Um, and I, I just think that he really nailed it. I mean, the, the time that they got, similar to the match at Mania, where you, you put it in the middle of a car, it gets time to breathe, and you don't, want to, you don't want to miss it as a main event, but then you don't want to have it with the time constraints that it has as a main event. Given this, the time in the middle, it really went, it really went long, but you can tell that he's... He's getting somewhere with an interview, which I've never really seen with Brett before. It is kind of trying to find the balance of managing it so that it's all coherent, which is ironic when it's me that's saying it, because I can ramble on for five minutes and you'll get a good 40 seconds of something half-decent. Brett's kind of similar, for it It went on for 15, 20 minutes, and you could shave a, a good couple of minutes off that. But if you can nail that, then just... For me, take my money, man. I'm totally invested in it. Rory, he's him and them are trying really, really hard, but they're going to have to work really, really hard to make this stick. Yeah, I think so. I really, really think so. By and I, just was a great promo from Brett. In tennis, when you break serve, it only really counts if you hold serve in the next game. And in professional wrestling, if you turn heel. Or turn face. It only really counts if you get your explanation down right the next day or the next week or the next month or whatever. And by and large, for the first 15 minutes, Brett got it absolutely right. It wasn't the easiest thing to necessarily sit down and watch. He did ramble. Then it sort of fit his character that he's so pissed off. He's been so screwed by everybody that he would sit down and break down everything. He would go through coming back. He would go through Survivor Series. He would go through its time and the Royal Rumble and quitting and Final Four and who's to see it and da di da di da di da da Went on a long time, understandably so. If you want the fans to boo you, bore them to death. Could be one way of looking at it. <laughs> uh, unintended consequences and all that. However, I agree with you on this one, Mr. Bambasur. This did not need the anti-American angle at all. Oh, no, I didn't say that. I don't, I think, it did as, I, I, no, I don't think it did at all. I don't think no, it needed I, to go I, there. I didn't Carry say on. it didn't need it. I said it felt crowbar. I think this is the point. It might need it because it might be the only way they can get Brett booed. This is it. This is that's exactly where I was going. And that's why he was so keen, both in this promo and when he did his little piece on commentary afterwards, to make clear that um, he's still fine with all his fans ever else around the world. This hasn't been confirmed anywhere, but it looks as though to me at this point he's going to be a heel in America and maybe the same character elsewhere. I mean, I don't know if that's where they're going, but it certainly looks and sounds like it with him pushing American fans specifically, which again is something very, very different. You don't see that in national territories. So again, fair play for trying something new, especially somebody has died in the wall as Brett the Hitman Hart, and I applaud that. Uh, if you're going to turn Brett heel, 
just turn the guy heel. It almost looks like Vince put this to him and Brett said, yeah, I'm, I, I like being the hero, so maybe I can still be the hero in other places, but I'll meet you halfway, I'll just be a, a heel in the States. I don't know, I'm projecting there, I'm guessing. And he explained himself well about American fans. Some of the things he said were, you know, based on the way that the, the, the fan reactions have been going in the last year or so in various promotions, then yeah, what he was saying, he definitely had a case, but I just wish they'd gone the whole hog, and if you're going to turn Brett, have him be a heel across the board. And if his fans still cheer him in Germany or here in the UK, or of course in Canada or in some various smart towns in the States, in Chicago or New York or Philly, and so be it. That's always going to happen. But really, really go with a heel turn if you're going to do it. I mean, he did that by the way he just tore Sean down and gave him the figure of all leg lock and then attacked Rocky Maivia for absolutely no reason. So yeah, I really enjoyed this. He really explained himself well. We're going somewhere very different with Bret Hart at last I'm just tiny, tiny bit more sceptical about it than I wanted to be, but it's at least something very different. So for now, as we say, let's let it play out and see where it goes. Yeah. Um, this was a long fucking promo. Um, by and large, it was pretty good. And I think, Dal, you talk about Brett's delivery. I think it helps that a lot of this is just Brett shooting. Um, it's easier to deliver a promo when you deliver it every night in the car to yourself. Um, but not a lot of it made sense. Like the, the broad strokes did, but the detail didn't. Like he talks about, you know, how I want to thank my fans in in Canada. I I don't I don't recall him getting a great reaction on that roar in Canada. Good, yes, but um. He talks about his fans in Germany. The WWF tour of Germany at the beginning of the month was the first WWF tour they've ever done to Germany that was not a sellout. So we talk about that. And he talks about fans booing him after beating Steve Austin. They didn't boo you after you beat Steve Austin. (laughs) They cheered. They booed you after you ran away from a fight with Ken Shamrock. And he talks about how the WWF has changed. About how, you know, no honour amongst thieves about, you know, I'm getting screwed out of title matches. Go back to January of 1996, where a Bret Hart Undertaker match got thrown out thanks to a double interference from from, from Shawn Michaels and from Owen Hart. Go back to February of 1996, where a title match between Bret Hart and Diesel got Brett won via that old escape the cage after Undertaker climbed through the ring and pulled Diesel underneath. Where was Brett then? You know, I know now I suppose he's a heel, he could be a hypocrite. But the story doesn't make sense. And the thing about, you know, anti-Americans, they cheered you when you won. They just booed you because you were a coward. Like, that's the... That's the bit here that's a struggle. And... I think they want to present this like it's this big nuanced angle, but the reason why I think the anti-American stuff is necessary is that this Brett promo, Brett didn't really get booed. Not a horrendous amount and not all that consistently. And that was, I think, the wider point. They had to throw the anti-American stuff in because it was the only way that they could 
sort of guarantee it got booed. Brett spent 15 minutes trying to get people to boo him, and yet the most heinous thing in the entire segment was Shawn Michaels coming out and saying, well, when people booed me, I didn't care. That was the biggest <laughs> heel point of the promo. It's like Brett spent 15 minutes trying to get people to boo him, and Austin, uh, Michaels comes out and just talks shit for 30 seconds, and he's already topped it. And it's like, yeah, it, I think it'll work, but it's, it, it's you know, they, they've laid out what they believe is this really complex story. And I, I don't want to call their fans ignorant or stupid, but I think, I think there's enough plausibly in the story where the fans will forget the small print. They haven't referred back to that Undertaker diesel stretch of a couple of months frequently enough to the point where they'll go, yes, Brett's a hypocrite. Or yes, or no, this makes no sense. But I'm almost a bit disappointed that they feel like they've laid out this very strong angle. But yet, they thought, shit, we need to make this work. We need to create this anti-American angle. Because we're really just... It, it doesn't really make sense. Whether you like it or not, and at this point, I don't. It was absolutely so. It was just whacked in there out of nowhere. No one glorifies criminal conduct like the Americans do. Okay, that's something to sit down and discuss. But what the hell has that got to do with you? <laughs> with you being, I don't know, saltily eliminated from the Royal Rumble by somebody who was not spotted by the referee. You know, I mean, come on. You're trying way too hard to make too much of a nuanced point here. I think that's probably why I didn't like it. In time, if that's where they come to go, I might well soften to it. But uh, as you say, Bob, and you're absolutely right, it's as if they had to try to come up with a reason to get Bret Hart booed. Vince McMahon on commentary said it a lot over the last few months. He's been ragging on Bret, saying, oh, maybe he's passed it. He, he just didn't have it, JR, all these sort of things. Oh, mixed reaction. Bollocks, quite frankly. Just, he was cheered right the way from start to the finish of the bell at WrestleMania 13. He hasn't been getting the absolute strongest... No, 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 he, wasn't, he wasn't cheered. It, yeah, it, 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 it diminished a little... Cheering Austin, they won't boom, boom, Brett. I think it's too much, again, for the second time, there's been too much instant revisionist history because that's the story that Vince wants to tell and ultimately is his company. Who are we to say differently, eh? Uh, yes, I get the impression that they are going to do this American angle. They're going to really have anti-American angle. They're going to have Brett, and if he is teaming up with Owen and Bulldog, which is what looks likely now, they're probably going to have to hammer it into the ground and it might well become overkill very, very soon. So I'm prepared to give it I'm prepared to absolutely give it a chance, of course, because it's something, again, I repeat, very, very different. It's not just your average heel turn. That's a good thing. Uh, They're playing a more dangerous game than they really need to. And I'm not sure I trust the WWF to be careful enough on this one. But uh, it's got us talking. And coming out of WrestleMania, you want that, really. And, and Del, we we talk about this being a non-standard heel turn. Well, Rory mentions it. We've got Brett crowbarring this anti-USA reference in. And then you add on to that the largely inexplicable reuniting with his brother. And then the kicker amongst the kickers was Jerry Lawler now likes Brett Hart. <laughs> and it's like, that probably annoys me more than anything else. Uh-huh. It's like, you know... He, I know it's meant to be black and white. I know the heel commentator is meant to support the heels. The babyface is meant to support the babyfaces. Some things you can't look past. And Jerry Lawler abruptly saying, oh, I've got respect for Brett. Fuck that. 
Like that that's that's a problem. I think that's more of a problem with with King than it is with Brett. The story for me, I might just be too much on the side of the Brett story, but I mean the the first the first question that you posed with Owen and Davey, more so Owen obviously with the last kind of three four year of what we've seen with they two. I uh, I think it was ninety one. Might have been 91, might have been 92. I used to have a WCW annual. And in it, you had your favourite stars from World Championship Wrestling and their favourite quotes. Rick and Scott Steiner's was blood was thicker than water. And uh, that makes perfect sense, we own, because Brett feels like the fans... Brett basically feels pissed on from every angle, whether it's the office, whether it's opponents, whether it's Sean, whether it's... Name X, Y, or Z. He feels betrayed. And who do you turn to when you're betrayed? You turn to your family. You might not like them. You might think they've been a dick or they've kicked your leg out of your leg in the last couple of years. But at the end of the day, you know where you're going for your Thanksgiving dinner. And that smug little big-nosed prick with the blonde hair is probably going to be sitting across from him. So he wants to be on the side. And you go to the people you can trust. The problem is, for the Lawler point of view, Jerry Lawler isn't a, a Jesse Ventura, or he isn't a Bobby Heenan, where no matter where they go or what side the defence they're on, they always logically link between who they like and who they don't. It's not, it's not a coincidence that Bobby Heenan still doesn't like Hulk Hogan, whether he's good or whether he's bad, he just doesn't fucking like him, so he tells you that. Jesse Ventura is the same, where he tries to... Uh, Try to think of Ventura references, but the first one that comes to mind is his praise for Dino Bravo. And like you, you can logically link why they're on their side. With Jerry, I think it was just, he feels as if he should, almost like what you were saying about Brett Crowbarn and the American stuff. Lawler seems to be almost Crowbarn and he's, he's newfound respect for Brett. And it just didn't quite make sense. But, um, I mean, bear in mind, we're, what, a week removed for, well, a night removed for, for Mania, um, and then coming on to next week's show a week. I mean, it's early days with us. I mean, it's it's different from what you had with Hogan. Can I come back to last year? It was it was in an instant, and they'd already kind of sowed the seeds with, with the outsiders coming in. This is a bit different, because Brett, Brett doesn't have the the prefabricated kind of allegiances that that Hollywood had or Hulk had at the time. Brett seems to be kind of building this up and it's it's going to maybe take a couple of, a couple of weeks to try and kind of sort out where he is on this. But um, for me, it is a, it's a very, very solid foundation, I think, for where it needs to go. It's just getting the... Getting the creases ironed out it where Jerry Lawler and commentary now just being behind him when he just had absolute math at ripping on his dad, what, 23 years ago. It's just kind of, it's the wee things like that that just need sorted out. But if anybody can do it, I'm just, I'm just happy I'm, I'm invested in Bret Hart again because it's been a wee while for me. As bad as that is to say, he's, He's probably the best wrestler I've ever seen. 
Um, I'm just happy to be involved in him and I just hope he nails it. But I've, I've got every faith that he will. It'll just take a wee bit of time for me. I say everything I said and I, I, I stand by all of that. But ultimately, it's not about where we're at, it's about where we're going. And if if I can find flot holes in it, it doesn't really matter. If if 99% of your audience can't remember back 14 months to 12, 13 months to the Royal Rumble and they can't remember back to In Your House in February of, of 1996, it doesn't really matter. Like if Brett's not a hypocrite, in a funny kind of way, Brett isn't a hypocrite if the audience can't remember him being a hypocrite. Like it almost doesn't matter. Like if providing the audience don't go, well, this is shit, Lawler now likes Brett, even if it's a criticism, it doesn't matter. If we get to next month, we've now got Bret Hart as a heel. We've got Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels too at some point that having skipped essentially a match that they were going to have now feels a significantly bigger deal without them having a match, which is a, a positive. It sets up Bret as a heel against Undertaker as a face down the road for the title, which should be fun. And it sets up a lot of other things. And I think, Rory, that's the main point. I can have a lot of problems with it. If it enables them to make money, it doesn't really matter. If the, you know, the, the small print's irrelevant if people don't read it, right? <laughs> Spoken like a man who knows. Uh, yes, I think this one has so many potential variables. And Austin, Brett on the heel side of the ledger has so many people he can work with. Austin on the brain. There's an instant rematch with Austin which I'd like. Although I'll hold off on that a little bit, but it's there. You've got uh, the title with Undertaker, as you rightly said. Although, again, I'd let Undertaker run with the title a little bit before you do that. There's so many places you can go with this with Brett as a heel in general. Throwing Owen and Bulldog into the mix, that adds a whole new complexion to it as well. You're almost building, there's only three of them, but you're almost building a stable there. So you've got the upper mid-card covered as well as your semi-main and main events. So, already, say, coming out of WrestleMania, you need to have a path. There are many places you can go, many ways you can turn. You've got to be on that path. And I think already, despite my very justifiable criticisms of the, the nature of the turn, necessarily, they've opened up many, many ways they can go with this. And it's going to be really, really interesting taking us all the way up to, and I hope beyond, SummerSlam. There's so many places we could go. And considering the WWF booking is normally very black and white for a company who really, really struggle compared to WCW with episodic storytelling, they're on, they've got towards, almost only now, got to the end of chapter one. But there's so many chapters there. It's almost like choose your own adventure story here. And uh, let's roll two sixes and see where we go. Well, Steve Austin may not have tapped out at WrestleMania, but three hours and 20 minutes into this taping, I'm just about ready to do that. So that's... Uh, oh, you're a wimp. Let's, uh, let's, 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 let's wrap this one up. Uh, Rory, thank you very much, mate. Uh, is that still my name? Rory, yeah, I think I remember that guy. Okay, yeah. It was a long time ago when I was last called by that name. <laughs> long, long time since we started the show as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> Uh, I, think, I think planets have been formed and died since we've begun this one. But hey, it's WrestleMania season, right? Ultimate thrill ride. Oh, God. Hours, <laughs> oh, God. 
Yeah, absolutely. As I said on Twitter this morning, is it the ultimate thrill ride in the sense that it takes a long time to get going and you feel sick at the end of it? Is that the... Fucking uh, great. <laughs> is, is, is that what it is? Rory, thank you very much for this. Uh, tell us where people can find you on Twitter and anything else you'd like yeah. to say. If Twitter is still very much a thing at this point, uh, I am. I, I was on there. That's uh, Ross DM. R O R S D M. So uh, unless it's been shut down now since the uh, five years when we started this podcast, check it out. Yes, it was very nearly wrestling forty years ago. Now it feels like it. Uh, Del Muir, Del, thank you very much, right? Always a pleasure, as I always love the gimmick. I'm more of the, the space mountain than the ultimate thrill ride, so I'm still very much involved. Even three and a half hours in, I could still go, Bob. Well, I, I I could just drop off the call if you want to keep going. Uh, no, there's uh, there's listeners I'd like to maintain as well. I don't want to. I, I think we've uh, the aim of this show is not to go long. The aim of this show is to just discuss what we need to discuss and move on. We just go long when we have lots to discuss. Dell, remind people where they can find you on Twitter. Yep, Twitter Dell underscore Muir, and uh, there I say it might be a wee while before you see me and Mike Namara booked in the same show again. If it goes three and a half hours long, I think. Yeah, well, uh, if uh, me and Jeff probably could have done three and a half on the show, I suspect. Jeff could go three and a half talking about Bret Hart, anyone? Yeah, that's true. We're gonna we'll probably experience it at that some point in the next few months. I'm certain of that. <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, plugs in briefly. Uh, yeah, patron, uh, if you'd like to say thank you or you'd like early access to, uh, to shows, you can do so by donating $5 a month to our patron account at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 YRS. Uh, links on our website and in the podcast description. Two other volumes for this month. Volume number two takes us to WCW, a very normal uncensored, uh, by WCW standards. The new volume number three takes to ECW, looking at the final stats before ECW barely legal next month. Dale, are we looking forward to ECW's first foray in the pay per view? Almost as much as I'm looking forward to Volume 2 and looking at the Mortal Kombat Battle of Outworld against uh, Mortis and Glacier. But hopefully April will deliver even more, if possible. Hopefully it will. Yes, uh, just a reminder, uh, well, uh, well I, I don't even know anymore. Uh, Wrestling20RS.com, whatever I was going to promote, I'm sure it's on there. Uh, that'll do that. I've been Bob Bamber. This has been the volume one of the March 1997 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. And until next time, goodbye.